shut up. The podcast is starting. It's my best Derek. I do a pretty good Derek. It's really good. Yeah. Is that- Anybody that... Uh, yeah, we're going. Yeah, yeah we can actually... We're, we'll be running a poll this week on uh, what, what our viewers and listeners think of my impression of Derek. So you can mm. reach us at uh, forecast at gmail. What is it? Yeah. Forecast <laughs> at gmail. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Celluloid Breakdown. I'm Joey Bonnier. Right next to me is Mr. Sean Faw. Across the table, we got Mr. Tim Snow. Thank you. And we have a special guest today. A special guest. I want to reintroduce... My old friend, my lover, Sean O'Brien. Hi, guys. Not, not really my lover. I mean, I, I wish. You're not good enough. No. You, that is, I mean, hey, man, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> so there's uh, like a weird dropout with the Zoom. Yeah, it was a little delay. Okay, right? I think we'll be okay, though. Okay. Um, we'll try our best. So, Sean, as the guest, we, or sorry, I'm going to have to make sure I say this. <laughs> Sean O'Brien. Maybe, I might just call him, by the way, OB, <laughs> O'Brien for Sean. Sean. OB. So that, that just to distinguish there. So OB, you did pick Citizen Kane as your pick, and the guest traditionally gets a pick. Let's uh, let's start off there. Why did you pick Citizen Kane? Uh, I did. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, I guess um, there was no intros here. We dive in. It's all good. I'm down. Um, <laughs> I, I fucking love this movie, man. You guys said that that it was 19 what is it 65 is the year 69 we're at now Mm -hmm. oh you keep pushing okay (laughs) (laughs) um so and i also know a lot about the movie and it's you know it's it's one of those classic films that everybody held that's generally regarded as the greatest film ever made um so it's there's a lot to talk about with that um so that was that's the main reason i and i also i really fucking love this movie well, let's then ask you, because you watched this obviously for, you know, the millionth time this time. Uh, what are your impressions yeah. after watching it right now, fresh? What's your first kind of impression? First impression? Fresh? I, I, it's, I, it's hard to answer that. Um, always fresh and yet never fresh. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's more fun to watch it like kind of with other people. So it was fun to hear your, um, like your reactions to it, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though it was just on Zoom. So like <laughs> I couldn't talk. <laughs> It, yeah, we were, half the time, that was one of the other interesting things. Half the time I normally watch this film with people, um, I'll sort of like go through frame by fucking frame, like kind of just inserting the, where I need to um, <laughs> about all the different tricks. Because mm-hmm. um, there's so, I mean, there's Roger Ebert argued that there there's just as many special effects shot in Citizen Kane as there are in Star Wars. Mm. Um, so it's one of those weird things that you don't actually notice until you really start to dig into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't know. I love it. I love it. It's funny. It's a lot funnier than I thought it was. And it's, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess the best way to put it before, well, like to stop me from rambling, it's been a while. Shit. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't really watched it in um, Fox news era as <laughs> okay. much with that same, um, yeah. with that same lens on. Right. And so I was like, Oh fuck, that's right. It's just, it's all, you know, Fah mentioned everything, everything old is new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's go to Sean. How Sean, about you guys? Yeah, what, Sean, what's your first opinion? Sean Fa. First impression. Um, Sean Yeah, I have to echo a lot of what uh, Sean O'Brien was saying there. Um, I do love this movie. Um, it is, you know, a movie I've seen quite a number of times. Um, there's, there's always something new in it. And 
I think, you know, like my first, first impression, the absolute first time I saw this movie, I remember going into it, assuming it was going to be a pretentious piece of crap and was just utterly delighted by the amount of comedy that is in this movie. And the fact that it like is a super like serious, I don't serious movie, but it doesn't necessarily take itself seriously in the writing. Like It's a yeah, satire. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, um, you know, if you don't actually understand that, just because of the sort of oeuvre around this movie, it can be it, it's per, it can be easily perceived as like one of those pretentious puff piece sort of like uh, artsy bullshit things. But when you watch it, it's enjoyable. Cool, Timmer. What do you uh, think? This is probably my third or fourth time seeing this, um, <clears throat> and the first time I watched it was in film school, you know, in, in Every, as everyone does. Exactly. In a class and you know in the dark room and blah 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 blah. And I remember the class that I uh saw it in was one of my introductory film classes and we watched a lot of fucking movies in that and they were all really boring and I would always fall asleep. <laughs> um but I didn't fall asleep when I saw Citizen Kane. Mm. And I always uh you know that that's what brought me back for that second viewing and maybe the third if it happened. Yeah. I don't know. And then this one too uh part of the reason I enjoyed it is like there's this timelessness to the to the cinematography and the production and the sound design and yep. everything that makes the film much more engaging than your average classic film I would think especially at this time yeah yeah and then so for this viewing um you know it's one of the main things that I was uh paying attention to I think was the structure of it in that, like, the film is really just kind of a series of vignettes. Oh, yeah. And that made it feel a little closer to me or to, like, like it feels more like coffee and cigarettes uh, than it does, like, Casablanca, you mm. know? Um, and it's odd that Casablanca is the contemporary, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and a film that feels like this won't come out until maybe 50 years after this. Um, so that just makes it so interesting to me. Yeah. Um, uh. Yeah, other than that, I've got uh, Time to Grow Another Mustache written down. <laughs> <laughs> and I, <laughs> I the, the the makeup on all of the actors I thought was, was quite interesting. I, I liked it in the beginning, and then it really went off the rails fast, you know? Yeah. It reminded me of, like, like Back to the Future level yep. shit, you know? Yeah, Elaine in the 1985 Biff world is definitely uh, coming through on a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, but overall, overall, I just, uh, I really enjoy this film as like the it's like the pet sounds of cinema, you know. Okay. Or like like if you know for if if we don't got spoil your review yet. What? Don't spoil your rating. Yeah, that's your rating. Now. Oh well, I'll have to come up with something better Jeez, then. Man. I got like three hours. You know, <laughs> this podcast lasts for fucking ever. True. We'll just give Obi one question. He can yeah. go forever. Yeah, I went on too long. Basically, <laughs> either way, it was good. So, so I, uh, Joe, yeah, Joey, what's your first? I, impression? Uh, I, I'd really <laughs> love this movie. This is my second time watching it. Uh, my first time, Sean actually forced, Sean, sorry, Sean Fall forced Sean me to Fall. watch it earlier. Uh, I think it was like last year or so. Yeah, it was like right before we started the cellular breakdown. Yeah. And um, I really liked it. I liked it even more this time. I got to look at kind of different things this time. Uh, I paid more attention to the music and the sound. Uh, I definitely paid more attention to Orson Welles himself. Mm. I looked a lot about his acting and I was really just impressed. 
honestly. I was I was thinking like, yeah, it's going to be just like everything else in the 40s or 50s. <laughs> but he was really good. Like, yeah. I mean, there's some overacting, obviously. You know, we talk about the destruction scene and <laughs> Frankenstein and blah, blah, blah. But um, I don't know. There's just a lot in his face. He does a really nice job. I really bought almost every scene, all the vignettes. And the way you mentioned the vignettes is so interesting to me, uh, Tim, because I think that to me, it's almost like uh, they're at bats. You know, I think about it like that. Like, what is the batting average? Because these vignettes, like some of them just work perfectly. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't work this, as well. But I think there's just so many that do work yeah. that this movie just seems to gel so well. It just seems to just like everything. It feels like they just keep hitting single after double after yeah. triple after home run. Just keeps getting hits. You know? Yeah, Maybe there's not, nothing that falls flat. Right. They're not, not all are home runs, but each vignette gets you on base, I guess, if that's my yeah. shitty yeah. analogy. That's a lot of baseball stuff. I am sorry. <laughs> Sports. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get. They into- call that um when when uh when when Wells and Mankiewicz met for the first time. That's one of the things they talked about was doing uh, what they described as a um a prismatic. So <laughs> seeing one perspective from or seeing a, a like a person's oh. story from everyone's different everyone's angle. Yeah. That's basically that was like they didn't really have an idea for who the the character was, but what you're talking about as far as the series of vignettes with the first thing they ever talked about. And they called it a prismatic biography. And that's their word, prismatic? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's really interesting. That's a science word, Tim. Yeah, well, it was fuck that. You, it was Sean. Them, some, yeah. Sean Fogg. <laughs> fuck you, Sean Fogg. <laughs> Thank you, Sean O'Brien. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Sean, uh, sorry, Sean O'Brien, um, <laughs> let's, let's dive into the story a little bit. Maybe you can kind of walk us through a little uh, of the plot here. Yeah, sure. Um, so Citizen Kane itself is it's a satire about a mythical figure um, named Charles Foster Kane, played by Orson Welles himself. Um, it's it's a newspaper film, actually, sort of in the classic style 30s, um, written by Herman J. Mankiewicz, who was uh, more honestly, I call him the um, the the Hunter S. Thompson of of screenwriting in that time. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> a screwball comedy writer um, and used that in this one story, which was originally called the American. Um, and it's a biographical, a biogra- biographical satire um, about a man named William Randolph. So the, the plot of the film um, is a series of vignettes told from many different perspectives, um, all followed by this one news newspaper man um, who is trying to, what Charles Foster Kane's last words meant, or last word meant, and the word is rosebud. Um, so he goes to everybody who ever knew Charles Foster Kane to find out what what rosebud was, um, and that's the that's the driving plot of the film. Um, you go through his ups and downs. You go through his political career. You go through his um, his affairs, um, and it, I don't think the film takes a position as to his. Um, or his heroism. Um, he's just a man. He's just an American. Um, and that's that's basically what it's about. That's just, that's the story of Citizen Kane. Um, how to do. That's great. Yeah, pretty, <laughs> good. Was pretty good. Better than a wiki. Okay. Yep. Yep. I'm always going to seem worse when I do these in the future because of this episode. Uh, <laughs> he was prepared, guys. That's, that's the key. The what now? Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So, Sean Faw. Yes, sir. Um, what do you think about Charles Foster Kane as a character? Do you think he is a realistic character? Um, the term spirit animal comes to mind. 
Okay, um, why do you say that? <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan, um, just in general, of uh, I guess the humanity of him. The the sort of you know showing these different angles of the same person, but how they all are the same person. Um, there is humor throughout, which is makes him human in general. But there are also these these moments of of tyranny, but you also get an idea of like why that is and why he's kind of making those choices. You might not hmm. necessarily agree, but you can at least see the through line and the sort of logic from that character's perspective. So to me, I, I really like the fact that this movie, like like Sean was saying, it doesn't necessarily treat him as a hero or a villain. Mm. He's a human that we're exploring. So do you like him because you're getting this multifaceted, nuanced view of this character, or do you like him honestly just because you agree with his political <laughs> viewpoints? <laughs> I mean, does it have to be? It can be both. It can be both. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's certainly a lot that I I like about him as a a character and as as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, he's a very flawed person, um, but there's much to be admired, at least, especially in the beginning with his, you know, sort of, um, I guess, pie in the sky view sure. of what the he's an idealist. yeah, you know, the the you know trying to be the hero, at least you know setting out on the right foot, and we kind of see like you know how the world just kind of fucks you no matter what. Hmm. Well, was it the world? I don't know. Was it the world that fucked Charles Foster Kane? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Cause it, you know, I, I kind of saw him as like just the classic protagonist, you know, he's the best, you know, cause the classic protagonist has to have two things. They have to be the best in the world at something and mm. they have to have one main flaw, uh-huh. you know, and he's the best newsman in the world, uh-huh. but he's, willful and vengeful to a fault, Mm, you know? So it's like very like text, you know, I see why we like him because he's just every, he's everything that you want in a main character. Yeah. Really. That's true. I mean, yeah, I think he, he has definite flaws you identify with. I love the childhood stuff and we don't get a ton of it. That's pretty good. But but let's talk about that scene, I guess, because I think that is essential and obviously because of the Rosebud shit, but we don't really even see the sled. Am I right? I mean, I guess you do. We do. We never see that it's Rosebud. We do see the sled. He uses the sled yeah. to oh, knock okay. Thompson down. That's the whole, that's, he's like, as a defense, like literally. Oh, you're right. I'm yeah. sorry. I forgot about that part. I'm sorry. Dog. I was just thinking about him through the window and he was just playing with the snow, but you're right. He is mm-hmm. totally using the sled. Well, the first yeah. time we see him, he's sliding down the hill on the sled. Like it's. They kind of hammer it down. I know, you're right. No, I'm sorry. I I wasn't thinking about that. But actually, I was thinking what OB is saying now is that it's used as a defense mechanism. That's really interesting, Mm -hmm. right? That's because- And then eventually- Oh, then there is that last shot of that scene where the it's a time lapse of the snow piling up on top of the uh, of the sled as well. Mm-hmm. Ah, what does that symbolize, Obi? Uh, buried over whiteness, white supremacy. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it definitely is being buried. You're right. I don't know about what. Maybe money. Maybe his just trauma. Yeah, just trauma. Yeah. Yeah. trauma it's you know? it's yeah. being buried. Like yeah, yeah. It's, it's just ero- it's eroding into point. the past. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Um, Frozen. Ob, do you identify with Charles Foster Kane? Um, no, not at all. No, there's not no really. qualities you you share. I, I mean, I I like to think I'm as charming as he is. I don't think that's true, but <laughs> <laughs> that's about it, honestly. As far as like who he is as a man, it's it's hard. It's really hard for me to distinguish. 
monster game. Um, or I'm, I'm sorry, it's like, I, I identify so much with Orson Welles and sort of just the, the, the underlying driving force of wanting something that you can never get and you'll never have, um, even if you have it and have already gotten it. Um, where it's hard for me to like separate the character and look at the character as a separate entity. So if you're asking me about the character, no, I don't identify with Charles Foster Kane, but like the Mankiewicz and the stories around, mm-hmm. around the making of the film. Sure. Um, but no, I don't really identify with him. Do you mean that Orson, this is Orson Welles masterpiece and everything else is like compared to that? Is that what you're kind of getting at? Like he started off oh, his no, life. Very- no, I guess it's, necessarily no oh no i don't like i don't identify in that way i i mean just the the artistic pursuit i would say okay the auteur yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, well sort of yeah it, so orson wells wrote this uh obviously directed well or did so he not he write, didn't it? write it oh so he so he had, it, he had no. no say in it at all the, well so there's it's kind of an interesting story when it first um when he came to rko he was going to be doing uh, Heart of Darkness and he, they worked for a good year like it was 1939 um, they worked for about a year on that and it was it became that the budget was just going to be too big they needed something they could shoot quick and, and cheaply yeah. um, and Mankiewicz was doing some uh, some radio plays for him um, but Mankiewicz was basically kind of on the outs as like a scamp because he after he had like this he was working on Duck Soup the, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the Marx Brothers, Brothers film we watched that yeah he was writing that and, and pissed off, I guess it was Selznick who was, who was produced? It was Paramount. Oh, no, it couldn't have been. It was Paramount. Anyway, whatever. Um, they kicked him off because he just was a drinking, he was a degenerate fucking gambler and a drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, but, and he also knew very well. Um, and so it was he and Wells who kind of met and uh, Mankiewicz wrote this, this screenplay um, completely, solely. And now when, under Wells's contract, it was sort of assumed that he was going to have just writer, producer, actor, director credit. So he was going to get the writer credit in the same way, kind of like a presidential speech writer would, mm-hmm. you know, would kind of just fall by the wayside. Like yeah. you don't know who writes. Um, I mean, we do now, but the, so that actually was what was going to happen with Mankiewicz, but Mankiewicz fucking loved this movie so much. And he was so proud of his screenplay that he's like, you know what? Fuck it. No, I want, Huh. And so Wells Wells offered him ten grand. They're like, dude, you could just just watch, just like I'll take it. It's no big deal. And he's like, nah, because he was a veteran and he had been through a lot of these credit wars throughout the studio system since the silent era. Mm. And he's like, nah, I can't. Not an actor. Like I think this is really good. <laughs> it's gonna go somewhere. <laughs> it's wise. Um, exactly. yeah. And and ironically enough, it was it was that sort of hubris that when he um I might be getting ahead of myself, but like the whole controversy that surrounded himself. Um, was more or less leaked by Mankiewicz himself when he sent a, a copy of the script to a friend of his, and that's how that's how the trouble where the trouble really fucking started with the, his, the history of this film, um, which is so much fun. Sort. So um, I have a question so, about. So, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. yeah, Mankiewicz wrote it, not Wells. I have a question about Hearst. So mm-hmm. Hearst knew they were making this about him. <laughs> well, this so, is yeah, obviously so we, about it, him. Okay, it, let's not it, beat around the bush. This is, this is about such, Randolph Hearst. This is yeah. such a fucking fun story. Uh, so cut in any time because I'll just keep going. Go. But yes, <laughs> yeah, go. Obviously about William Randolph Hearst. Um, William Randolph Hearst was the Roger Ailes of his day um, and arguably the Trump in this weird puritanical fucking degenerate way. Um, he 
um, he was given a single newspaper by his dad in like 1887. Um, and he's like, oh, this will be okay. He just grew the empire of this, his like, you know, little right wing rags. And he, he was the underdog at the time trying to take on Joseph Pulitzer, oh. um, who owned like the world newspaper. And, and they called them the, the gossip gods of Gotham, actually. For <laughs> row, um, right in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge downtown in the 1800s. Um, so Hearst, Hearst made all of his fucking money and used to throw these parties. And, um, and in his later years, thirties, um, or mid thirties, I guess, ended up taking up with a mistress named Marion Davies. Um, his wife would not get a divorce cause she was a devout Catholic. So she lived on the East coast and Hearst built his castle, which mm-hmm. is still out here. It's called San Sam. And um, he used to throw these lavish parties and Mankiewicz would attend these parties and knew Marion Davis and was really good friends with them, actually. Um, and when he when he came with the script, they're like, all right, let's do it. And Mankiewicz and well, fucking little egotistical jerk offs mm-hmm. and like and and just kind of trolls in a way. They're like, fuck it, dude, let's do this shit. They, they knew they were going to get in trouble. Yeah, so I enjoyed that. All right, a little technical difficulties there, but uh, see you back online. And uh, OB, what, what were you talking about there? Sorry, the question is, is this film about William Randolph Hearst? The answer is <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz wrote the story about it, um, about Herman Hearst. Uh, um, but Wells and Mankiewicz both knew that they were doing something wrong. So... Um, they kept it under wraps. Wells told, like, Wells told Mankiewicz, don't fucking show anybody. He's like, I know, jerk off. But of course, fucking <laughs> a gambler, as I mentioned. So um, he showed it to his friend, who was also a friend of Hearst. And Hearst, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and uh, they showed it to Hearst. So Hearst got wind of it. And they're like, what the fuck? Now, meanwhile, they weren't, re- they were going to show the film to RKO, or they, you know, they had already kind of given the script, more or less, but Wells could do whatever he wanted. Um, but they were like, all right, you know, they didn't completely green light him. They gave him about 15 days of uh, test shooting to do. Um, so they went into the RKO back lot and Orson Welles started shooting the fucking film. And <laughs> so after like the 10 days of quote test shooting, <laughs> the, the, um, the, uh, the RKO, oh man, I can't remember his name actually. The guy who ran RKO, um, Starts with an S, whatever, Mr. S, let's call it. He'll, he'll um, it. Yeah, the, the, it's because the owner was actually Rockefeller. Rockefeller owned um, RKO at the time. David But the, the guy who was running it, yeah, no, that doesn't sound right, but okay, Sam off. That's fine. Um, <laughs> he, he, he was he was under under Wells' thumb at that point because they had already shot a bunch of shit that they thought was test, and they're like, "All right, go for it, man. You're already shooting." So, like for a good kind of half a month, the production was already underway. Um, the film and the very first time, uh, there was a, a gossip columnist, uh, Hetty something. Uh, Lamar. I know, right? That's what. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's like, like the machine. She paused, but inventing <laughs> Wi-Fi to opine. <laughs> a huge, a huge friend or a, a, a friend of Hearst's as well visited the set, and so when they came, uh, when she came, they just shot something innocent, and Wells told her he's like, "No, the rumors aren't true that it's actually." Um, so she kept printing like positive, positive things about like mm-hmm. you know the boy wonder, and when the RKO studio heads came to visit. 
Wells would stop everybody and said, all right, dang it, take a break. And everybody went to go play baseball on, on the back lot until left. So nobody really saw it. Um, and then Robert Wise went and started editing it. And basically before they knew it, they had the film done. And when the head of RKO saw it, um, he, you know, he, he was also kind of scared at the same time, but word had already fucking gotten out. And Louis B. Mayer. Now, here's the best, and I'll stop at this part of the story, which is probably <laughs> the most interesting. Um, Louis B. Mayer uh, wasn't great friends with William Randolph Hearst. Little kind of understanding, um, because several years, about a, a decade before that, was the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole idea, the reason this was so salacious and scandalous was that William Randolph Hearst, and it had a fucking mistress. <laughs> So it's like, and it's not just him, it's every fucking studio head that was out there. So if this gets out, if this film gets out, this is basically going to be a Me Too situation. Uh-huh. Um, so Louis B. Mayer brought the head of RKO, not the, yeah, the head of RKO. Um, Citizen Kane was made for about $600,000. Um, Louis B. Mayer offered him eight, $800,000 um, to, to destroy the negative of the film. Jesus. <laughs> wow. And no one knows how or why, but he... But he just re- refused. He he never told the RKO like board heads. Um, he just said no. Wow. And and that was it. Yeah. For the, no one really knows like what went down, but they know. Um, but he said no. That's some real slugworth and, shit. So yeah, no, dude, it's crazy. So no one knew about Hearst's mistress at all at that point. No, they knew about it. I mean, it was an open secret, oh, was but it was secret. one of those things where it's like you know fucking major motion picture about it from that everybody's been talking about and raving right. about. Um, and oh that's the other thing too. The the um a lot of the newspaper kind of critics had had seen advanced versions of the film and they fucking loved it. They were like this movie <laughs> is breaking all the gr- this is like this is absolutely fantastic. So they were all you know probably also didn't like Hearst as well mm. but they were all behind it. Um, but of course to get enough power to shut it down to not to make sure it wasn't seen it was a literal conspiracy to make sure it wasn't seen in theaters i feel like um, it, so I, it made no money i feel like at this oh that's that's really interesting i was going to say we'll talk about that in a second but i think it's really interesting because it's 41 now and i don't know if randolph hearst is as powerful as he used to be in the yellow journalism era so i'm wondering if maybe they're not as afraid of him as they maybe used to be at that point but I don't know. It seems it's like possible. I don't know. It seems like he was very powerful at that point. But at forty-one, maybe not in Hollywood. Yeah, in Hollywood. Okay. In Hollywood, he was powerful. Yeah, it, he was as a journalist. No, of course not at all. But like, you know, it was like if you made a movie about the the head of the Inquirer, the National Inquirer, but like, or I guess Variety or the Hollywood. Yeah, gotcha. a better thing. Like if if it was about the the you know whoever the fuck publishes the Variety. There is a movie about the Inquirer. It's really fucked up. Uh, there's, there's some weird shit going on there. Um, a lot of things like disappeared around 9-11 and, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of weird conspiracies. <laughs> Check into that. Yeah. Inquiring <laughs> Minds is the documentary. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah you're, you're tightening something over there. Is that, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Is that a Nalgene? <laughs> Basically, it's one of those fucking flask things. Sorry, you're right. That's okay. I forgot. <laughs> my, my podcast etiquette's a little rusty. No, the listeners love that. They'll use that as Foley in their next movie. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. 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 Meryl's a listener and she actually appreciates the realism. Mm. Meryl Streep, he's talking right. about. Yeah. yeah, Meryl Streep. Also, um, Olivia de Havilland. She's yes. A, she's oh, very, she's a big fan. She's a big fan. Big fan. 
Yeah, she's 102. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. she can hear it in the grave. Yeah, is she she's, dead? No, she's alive. She's not <laughs> no, dead. No, she's alive. No, she's alive, and I really want no, to have her on the podcast. How do we know that she's not like a marionette, though? Um, I don't know. Like a, a, a la weekend at Bernie's. Much in the same way, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which I believe uh, we saw the initial, we saw the initial uh, impetus for the design oh, of right. Bernie in this film. Yes, mm. we did. In, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was that guy's name? Mr. Again? Leland. D- J- Le- Jedediah? Yeah. Yeah. Jedediah, yeah. Jedediah Leland. Jed Leland. God damn, what a name. So the reason, <laughs> by the way, you, the reason that his makeup was so bad was because they had to rush it. Uh, Wells mm. broke his ankle um, in the, the fight with uh, Jim W. Geddes. <laughs> when he was running down the steps, he broke his ankle mm-hmm. in that shot. Oh, wow. Um, and so they, uh, so they had to rush and do his makeup. And both Leland or uh, both Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles obviously hated his makeup. Um, so that's why his skull cap's all fucking whacked out and shit. Yeah, he looks he looks bad. I like it though. Yeah. The, the mustache. <laughs> I, I like the mustache. The mustache, particularly. It's very impressive they tried this, all the aging. I, I can't believe they really even went for it. I think they did a pretty good yeah. job. It's okay. Some it, of it's so over the top. Yeah. You know, like the uh, uh, the way that they aged um, Bernstein. Uh, Susan. Oh. The, the woman, yeah. What's totally her nuts? Right. Literally, she looks, like, she looks like Mama McFly. Exactly, yep. Yeah. You know, it's In the bad. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, McFly. this is 1941. Like, yeah. the, I can't remember what her name the, is. The makeup, like, real, realism makeup was, was hard to do. It was rare. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the way that they got Orson Welles' eyes and face to look like yeah. a grumpy old Something. man yeah. was was a triumph i think mm. some some real failures but that was a triumph for yeah. the makeup yeah there was a lot of <laughs> yeah. problems in the neck area but the eye area was yeah. doing good mm-hmm. i could see yes i i completely mm-hmm. agree the where where his ears and chin meet Be, yep yep right there there was a couple of weird creases but for the most part yeah <laughs> a harbinger of uh jim carrey's the grinch to come <laughs> This has been Makeup Corner. <laughs> yeah, this has been the Makeup Corner with Never Nude Tim. All right, well, well since we're talking about actors and modern actors, why don't we do a little little play? Let's do Cast It Today. We haven't really done that before. Oh, well, uh, but let's at least talk we've about- We've done it before. We, we haven't really done it before, he says. Well, we haven't really done it recently is what yeah. I meant to say. Uh, uh, sorry. The, the point is that I don't think we really need to cast many. Maybe just Charles Foster Kane. Let's just think of who I could, wanna, there's who a could few people play. I want to cast today. Okay, who could play him? Well, um, I would like to see, uh, I would like, to, what, what was his name? Uh, Sloan. What's his name? Uh, I don't know who you're what? talking about. <laughs> he's, the, he's the little yes man with the crooked nose and the- Bernstein's oh. character? Bernstein. Edward Ber- Sloan? I would like to see Edward Sloan replaced by Kermit the Frog. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that that would be an interesting turn, and I think it would bring more to the plot than it would take. Uh why is there so much news about Kane? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a... Wait, no. <laughs> it's no trick to make a lot of money. Oh, uh, you really a are a great man, Mr. Kane. <laughs> oh, I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> I saw this girl one time. Hip, I was hip. in the dock. I was on a ferry. <laughs> I know all the words to your song, Mr. Kane. <laughs> Would you like me to work a little later on Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> um, Ob, what do you think if you had to cast someone today? Uh, do I, what, what's the, what's the game? I just pick one character, or yeah, you can do. Uh, well, we we got to recast this whole film. Yeah, okay, we got to recast. Yeah, we're doing we're doing a reboot. 
I mean, I, I would go probably either Christian Bale or Daniel Day Lewis for Kane. Very <laughs> bold. Daniel Day Lewis, absolutely. I, I can okay. see Christian I still want to work Bale. No, with Christian Bale would crush it, dude, because he would gain all the yeah. weight. He yeah. would do the thing, you know. Yeah. And you could probably shoot the picture over a really long period of time and actually like film him thin and then film him fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, do yeah. kind of a boyhood yep. thing with it. I like that. Yep. Uh, Sean Paul, what do you got? Uh, for some reason, I really like uh, Brad Pitt as Leland. Um, Love it. Okay. Hmm. Yes, I can see that. Yeah. Has anyone seen the firm? (laughs) (laughs) Because there's a character in the firm. And uh, I want to go with Lithgow for uh, Kane. Okay. When? When are you making this? Yeah. Yeah. How do you get a young Lithgow? How do you get 24 year old Lithgow? We have de aging now. Oh God. (laughs) I'm gonna de age Lithgow. No. Naomi just making Watts a Roger- for Susan Alexander. <laughs> oh, nice. Interesting. Um, That's good. That's a good case. And, uh, uh, yeah, Thompson. How about Thompson? Benicio Del Toro for Gettys. Who's Thompson? <laughs> the butler? The butler's Thompson? I think he's talking about uh, Leah Thompson from... Oh, Leah Thompson. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, no. Mr. Thompson is, I think, the the newspaper guy. Oh. The, like, the, sort of the main character of the film. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I guess he's important. Oh, oh, sure. oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking of somebody. Yeah. Like we only see, ironically, at the premiere, stood up, nobody knew who he was, so he made a joke. He said, maybe, maybe, maybe I should turn around. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. Over the whole thing. That's so funny. <laughs> I feel bad for him, too, now, because he really was just all over the shoulders. Yeah. Poor yeah, guy. he's in the same position. The editors can really fuck you. Well, I think that's intentional because we're supposed to be vicarious mm-hmm. through him. So that was one thing I was going to kind of talk about in some, and when we talk about visuals, but since we're there, oh. um, just quickly. <laughs> don't uh, don't yunk <laughs> Yeah, When he opens the case, don't look inside. <laughs> uh, just one thing I noticed uh, this viewing that I hadn't really paid attention to in a lot of others is the dark faces like so much of this movie especially like the newspaper people are kept in these smoky dark rooms with streaks of light going through everything Mm -hmm. but you can't see who these people actually are these are the nameless faceless people that are in these rooms making these decisions that no one ever really gets to know about Mm -hmm. Hmm. yes and well they use that a lot on on uh wells on kane too yeah yeah a lot of the, a lot of the major things that he's like, you know, when he's explain like the declaration of principles, um, he's in complete, he's completely in shadow. There. Yep. You don't see his face at all. So it's a question mm-hmm. of like, well, does, does he actually believe it? Are we supposed to, you know, what's, what is this foretelling? And part of that is also like, we're seeing this through the eyes of someone else. So like how much of that is reality oh, yeah. and how much that's is an interesting perception point. That's of true. them. And yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. The, uh, unreliable narrator sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And the, the, well, whatever, we'll get to that. I have too much to say about Greg Tolan. I'll go on. I'll go off. You guys talk. Um, OB, how would you rate uh, Orson Welles as an actor in this movie? Just as an actor. Oh, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what the scale is, but really well. I think it's his best performance, no question. Um, he actually didn't like himself as an actor. Um, he, he used to say he was, he intellectualized everything. Um, he was well known on the. He had just done Hamlet. Um, 
you know, he, he did his, he and the Mercury players did his own, their own stuff. Um, and there's this one scene in this that you guys even mentioned about the overacting, um, where he, he just, um, and right after that, he cuts his hand, by the way, doing that. Mm. You can see he hides his left hand right Leo. before he picks up the globe. Cause they yep. did it in two, they did it in basically one shot with four cameras rolling. Um, and as he was walking off to that, he mumbled under his breath, like with tears in his eyes, just like, my God, I really felt it. I, I really felt it like with this exuberance, like, holy shit, man, that's what fucking acting feels like. Hmm. Um, and there's no close up, so you can't really see it. So to us, it feels like kind of overwrought. Histronic is the word, but, um, I, I, I love his performance in this. I think it's charming. It's, it's just the right kind of like, you know, trolly seething like <laughs> this asshole guy and yet you might keep watching him yeah. um i yeah i love his performance how about you guys i agree i i think when he's you're right you kind of nailed it there when he's an asshole you really feel like he's an asshole when he's trying to be slick he's really kind of slick mm-hmm. um i think he's he basically succeeds at everything he's trying to do i think i think we uh-huh. find the believability in some of the realism in yeah. the character and the fact yeah. that he's sort of playing himself mm-hmm. in ways yeah sure you know yeah, absolutely. Especially his later self that he is yet to become. Well, I mean, once a twerp, always a twerp. I suppose. <laughs> not to say he's not a genius. It's so crazy. He hated that, by the way. He, he never wanted, he, he always rejected that uh, idea. He's like, I didn't think I was a genius. He was 24 years old when he made this movie. Oh, no, I, I think he was. I yeah. totally agree. I mean, I didn't <laughs> but, know my asshole like, from my nah. elbow when I was 24 years old. I guess the only, <laughs> the main reason I would disagree with that is because this is the only one. Um, if he had followed, I mean, he, he made other movies, but none of them compare to what he did here. And There's a reason for that, though. Th- that's true, too. There are, yeah. Uh, he, he was hamstrung. I mean, Magnificent yeah. Emerson was, was, like, cut out for that fucking movie. It was literally on the cut, you know, yeah, cut they, out by the studio. They sent him to shoot something else while they re-edited that on him. And, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But I mean, but I think it's fair. I think there's an interesting take on it, um, which, who uh, was it? Fucking Pauline Kael. Uh, she was a film critic who, who wrote this thing called Raising Cain. Um, it's like the one kind of good uh, story, like essay about this film, um, and she 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 makes this point. It's Mankiewicz. Ma- Mankiewicz, as the writer, like Wells, really had trouble with his own stuff. Like the only other thing I think that might compare is um, *Transit Midnight*, mm. um, which again that's Shakespeare. He he as a as sort of a writer is yeah it's not that great, but when he had the kind of wit of Mankiewicz or Shakespeare, I think that's when he really was able to kind of flourish. Mm-hmm. More of an interpreter then. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, you know, it, not to say whether he was or wasn't a genius. I mean, what is a fucking artistic genius yeah. anyway? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Artist, you the right, utterly you subjective. The right <laughs> note? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, wait, can I go back to visuals real quick? Yeah, of course. Uh, for, okay. <laughs> Anything you want, man. Of course. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You don't have go to ahead, go ahead Visuals. Well, we, as Paul was talking, Greg Toland, um, because he's he really we haven't mentioned him at all. He mm. is the fucking un- he, the first time in in cinema history at that point where the cinematographer and the director shared screen credit. Um, mm. And so, and Wells did that for a very specific reason because he thought he deserved. He thought Toland deserved it. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Toland 
Beatles came to Hollywood, Greg Tolan asked to to work with them. He was uh, on loan. He was like a he was John Ford's cameraman. Um, so he was basically on loan uh, from like Warner Brothers or whatever. Uh, went to RKO, worked, and um, and there's a main reason for that. The best reason is this one story that um, that I absolutely adore from this, the shooting of this film. The first, like, kind of week or two, uh, Orson Welles, who was used to theater, would walk around and talk to the the electricians and the grips and and say how he wanted the lighting done. Um, so he's like, okay, we'll move the lighting here and move like this, you know, do this, this, etc. And that would look at him like the electrician would look, and he over Orson Welles' shoulder was Greg Toland saying like, Shh, don't tell him, don't tell him. <laughs> so for weeks this went on. Finally, one day, one of the grips or the electricians tell him, um, they're like, you know, photography takes care of the lighting. Like, this is not your department, man. <laughs> and he, Wells was Wells was mortified. He went up to Greg Tolan. He's like, I'm I am so sorry. I came from <laughs> theater. I had no idea. I didn't know I was stepping on your toe. I'm deeply sorry. I, I'm really sorry. And uh, Greg Tolan said, Don't be silly, man. Like the only way to actually learn something in this business. Is to work with someone who doesn't know what they can't do, and that was why Greg Tolan wanted to work because Orson Welles didn't know what he couldn't do. Right. Um, so, so all the different innovations literally came from this magician theater director who just wanted to try a bunch of shit. And Tolan was like, "Fuck yeah, dude! Let's fucking like, let's, let's, let's have some fun." Yeah. Uh, so sorry, that was the, my one visuals thing before we moved on. No, it was wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. Because it also gives us a little historical context. And I, I kind of wanted to mention that before we move on a little bit, if that's okay, because you mentioned that it, it didn't make a lot of money, I think. It was 600 k Is that what you said? The, the, that was the budget was 600 oh, so budget was uh, 600 I, I look. I ended up looking it up. It was uh, $686,033 was the cost. It's also George <laughs> Schaefer. George Schaefer was the head you know, of just okay. that for inflation, Sean? Run by... I cannot. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, Sean Faw. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry. Sorry. I was like, my phone, I can't. I'm sorry. I want to. Both <laughs> Do of, it on the literally fly. Literally both phones are being utilized. Um, it did. Um, okay. But it didn't make, it didn't make a lot because the, um, actually RKO threatened to sue the other four, the other four studios um, for conspiracy because they were saying they weren't going to show the film. Um, and most, and so they, to show the film, quote, show the film. But what actually happened was they bought it and they just didn't run it. Um, so they had it. They just didn't, you know, have any actual screenings for it. So it didn't make a lot of money, but it did. It, it made some money. Okay. Um, but it didn't. Have, it didn't actually get like the acclaim that we know of it now until about the late fifties, sixties. Um, but you why know, is it, that? It was nominated for like. Why did it take so uh, long? Well, I, there was so much. Well, I mean, jail basically. I'm in Hollywood jail. Um, this nobody wanted to work with them. It, they. They the only Oscar that it got was the screenplay because they basically gave it to Herman Mankiewicz, who was one of them, and also kind of leaked the script. Right? Um, but as far as director, picture, all it was nominated for like what seven, eight, nine Academy Awards. Um, and every single time Orson Welles' name was read, the whole crowd fucking booed and hissed at him. Um, wow! Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. During the awards, uh, it was you know he stepped on all the wrong toes. They weren't. <laughs> they weren't. They didn't want him. Um, and so he made Emerson's and they fucking destroyed that to basically destroy his career. And he never, he, he never, I mean, up until the eighties, he was, you know, 
1971, he was like younger than a lot of the actual working directors and still like 50, he was 50 some odd years old and still couldn't get a fucking gig. Um, just cause he had, Hollywood didn't want him. Um, so he, he was like a true, and when he died, he had cans and cans of film under his bed of just shot footage from <laughs> random things he was trying to do. Um, and what was it? Yeah, but it did, it did make money, but it didn't make a lot. Um, and, but the, the resurgence dance is came from, um, the French new wave, the Cahiers du cinema, um, started to look at the old film directors and, uh, it was Francois Truffaut who kind of really exalted Citizen Kane. They were like, there's no better film than, um, and then that was when it gained, gained its resurgence in the, like 1958, I think. Hmm. Wow. I love that. Yeah, that's great. To me, it's a, I always compare everything to fucking music, but I always like when, you know, specific eras of music look back on an era previous and they kind of, you know, repopularize it. And I love that stuff. For me, it was like the blues in the eighties, Stevie Ray Vaughan and that yeah. kind of stuff. So that, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. Um, because it, yeah, because it wasn't popular. I guess it was, you said it was popular, but not, I guess at the time. Um, well, it was, it, um, or just wasn't a yeah, it's hard to say. Maybe. It's hard to say popular. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't. You couldn't fucking see it. You know what I mean? None of this. None of the screening rooms were playing it. So people probably would have seen it, but there was around it. And all of Hearst's paper, like they weren't allowed to mention it. So all the other ones just, you know, said it was kind of sort of trash, like normal newspaper movie. It was just whatever. This boy wonder, he fucked it up. Um, yeah, it was. There was kicked into speed into high gear to discredit the film before it even got saw before it was even, even got a chance. One more so question. It did make it, it technically made its money back, but it was not the hit that RKO needed. I have a question about uh, the war because this is smack dab at 41 right in the middle of world yeah. war two. I don't know. Did that affect this at all? I mean, I don't know. It's, it seems very interesting that they don't really talk too much about it. They throw Hitler in for one quick shot, <laughs> which is crazy because Kane is like buddy buddy yeah. with Hitler. But they don't really discuss it too much. Well, yeah. they do make an offhanded comment about like, uh, you know, it was something like sometimes you regret or, you know, uh, like it was in a montage right. of like good things and yes, bad yes, things yes. and like, you know, flashing through his life. So. Right. Oh, th- I, that was a, that was a, that was a specific reference to Hearst being yeah. a fucking fascist, uh-huh. a right-wing asshole. Yeah, it was making fun of him. Um, announced, but the yeah. actual Kane ended up denouncing him, quote-unquote, was what you were looking but for, Sean. Hearst didn't? Um, I, I don't think it affected it. Hearst? Hearst did Hearst, not denounce? I, um, I, was, I thought he did. I, but, uh, I'm sure. But, you know, like yeah. it's... Orson Welles was a little socialist, so yeah, I'm sure yeah, totally. he's like, right. you know, like, like definitely throw that jab in. Cap- capitalist pig dog. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. yeah. um, I don't think it affected it. To answer your question, no, I don't think that the war affected the film in and of itself, um, in either direction. Yeah, it does seem kind of uh, out of place at a time. It's, it's almost a timeless film. Because it does, yeah. it, and obviously it, it's montages of different eras and of his life too, obviously. But I think that it could have been more about one or two elements and it really did a good job of, I mean, even World War One. I, I think Spanish-American War they touched on, they really did a lot of different historical American Even the, um, even the Civil War the, the, and the scene you were talking about with him as a kid when he's, he's like throwing a snowball, uh, he's shouting Union Forever. Oh, oh shit. Oh, wow. Wow, that's really interesting. This is yeah, it's almost like a, a it's almost like Forrest Gump in that way, where each thing is like a touchstone <laughs> oh, of American yeah. history. Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of. Except, you know, he's uh, not Forrest Gump. Well, I mean, <laughs> Forrest, way, he kind of is, yeah. Forrest Gump is the best in the world at something, and he's <laughs> got one main flaw. Jenny, Jenny. His love for Jenny. He knows what love is. Jenny. <laughs> He's not a smart man. I'm not a smart man, Jenny. But you know what, Sean? Eat Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate that movie, man. You don't I, got I magic like shoes, huh, dude? And I, I apologize to any listeners out there who are offended by this. That's Please fine. keep listening. But I fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> It's <laughs> fantastic. All right, Sean. I think it's time. Gentlemen, are you ready to play the most wondrously fantabulous game to ever be thrust far from the bowels of the internet? The only game where I look up the numbers and give you the name and the... Get the girls! That's what we're going to do. So, uh, today we're going to be doing uh, journalism movies. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, first up on the list. Where's my list? We here? should start sh- hooking... Sean Fa up to a heart monitor. I was thinking that. I was thinking that. It makes me very nervous. It does. I, I, I get nervous. For There's got to be at least like one arrhythmia or a palpitation. <laughs> All right. So, uh, journalism movies. Experience it. Enjoy it. Just don't fall for it. In 2000, directed by Cameron Crowe, we have Almost Famous. Reaching, oh, gentlemen. Reaching. How much did Almost Famous make in two thousand? Domestic, Obi. Yeah, domestic gross. Okay. Um, we will start with Joey. I'm gonna say sixty-five million dollars. Oh shit! Yeah, right. What? 60. Too low? Too high? No, that's it. I literally already wrote it down. <laughs> right on. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, Joey says 65. And Timmer? Uh, I'm going to say 16. $16 million. And Whoa. Sean? Almost famous? Yeah. Um, I, I wrote down $65 million. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, what that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. So I'll say, oh, wait, yeah, no. It, well, it's a tie. Change. I mean, if we yeah, get that, it, That's the it. point of writing oh, it, it down. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about everybody going in oh, blind. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Got this it. one, Copy Kate, that. Uh, you guys were much closer to the budget. The budget on this was sixty million dollars, uh, but it came in at thirty-two yeah, so like million dollars. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> yep. Well done, Tim. Domestic gross. Uh, yeah, Tim. Holy does shit! This wasn't a performer. This is a sleeper. It's a cult hit. Yeah, this is a you know, Comedy this, Central. This was big replay. because of HBO, exactly. not because of the yeah. home box office. Yeah, not Comedy Central. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. No, yeah. I, I mean, what's her name? Wanna, Kate, this was Kate one of those Hudson afternoon movies that, that it would play all the time. It's it still wasn't a big box office movie. I don't think. No, well, obviously. I think Cameron Crowe won as well. Both Cameron Crowe. And Kate Hudson won Oscars for that, I thought, yeah. right? Awards, yeah. obviously, yes. don't equate to box office. Yeah, yeah. It's not always the performance. No, I can't. Sorry. I'm, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Next up. Truth Be Told. In 2017, directed by Steven Spielberg, we have The Post. The Post. The Post. Which one? Who's who, who starred in this one? Um, oh, this was Tom, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Meryl Streep. Oh, this is one of the golf movies. 
So I have a theory that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, every couple of years, get together and play golf. And halfway mm. through the game, one of them's <laughs> like, hey, Steve. And Steve will look over and he'll say, hey, Tom, what's up? And Tom will be like, we haven't made a movie in a while. What was the last thing? Bridge of Spies, right? Let's let's make that again. Let's get Meryl. <laughs> I really think that that's the whole fucking thing. Well, okay, what's so selling these days? Theory. When when do you think? Like, where in the game are they on? Are they putting? Oh no no are no no! They no. Like they're off when uh-huh. they're six beers in on hole eleven. Okay. <laughs> <Got> <laughs> <it>. <laughs> are they? But are they in the putting green? Uh, are they in the fairway? No 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 no! They're in the middle. All right, so they're they're both trying to recover like the, from bad drives. Because oh. they're fucking schlots, right? That yeah. That's when the ideas and come. So, and so, like, you know, they're kind of losing faith in the game because, like, right. nobody's going to do well. So it's like, eh. well, Steve, I mean. Let's do it. <laughs> we're both in the picture business. Let's make something. Well, Tim, what did the Post make then? Uh, it, you know, it was an uncertain year for, for finances. You know, oh, people weren't. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, it was an election. It was coming up, uh, coming up off an election year. And this was a this was a springtime, you know, it was before summer, I believe. I don't oh. think it was a fall film. Oh, springtime comes before summer. Uh, fuck you. But I'm just <laughs> saying, you know, it had a lot there were a lot of things up in the air. Fifty five million dollars. Fifty five, says Timmer. <laughs> and John. I say eighty. Eighty million and Sean. Uh one eleven. One hundred and eleven million dollars. Joey takes this one away. It came in at eighty-one point nine million dollars. Nice. Uh, well, I was confident until then. Suck it, Tim. <laughs> Had a budget of fifty million. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. They took on the government with nothing but the truth. In two thousand and five, directed oh. by uh, Mr. Jorge Clooney. We have good night and good luck. Ah. Oh, I've never even heard of this. Hey, mm. you don't like this, Obi? It's a good movie. Oh no, I I, I like the movie a lot. Oh, you, <laughs> made, you made a noise. You made a... Yeah, the noise was like, did it make money? Oh, I see. I see. Oh. <laughs> He's already playing the game, gentlemen. He's into it. <laughs> so, in 2005, what did Fuck. Good Night and Good Luck make? That's Mr. Hard. Joseph Bonnier. Let's say 40, 40. Oh, 4 0. And Timmer. This was a bold time for America, you know? Um, Shut we up. were uh, I'm just saying, you know, we still you know, we were we were in the beginning of of starting to lose faith in Bush, you know, but this was a bold time. So sixty one million dollars, I'll say. Sixty one. This is a bold time. And Mr. OB. David Strathairn never had the making of a varsity athlete. Oh, come I'm on. Go with, I'm gonna go with twenty eight million. Million dollars. (laughs) Good night Uh, and good luck. This one is going to go to Mr. Sean O'Brien. This one came in at thirty-one million dollars. Fuck yeah! But what did he get? Eighteen or twenty-eight? Twenty-eight. I said twenty-eight. Jesus, good guess. That is pretty good. Yeah, that's right. All right. Next up, two men driven to tell the truth, whatever the cost. Are you cutting up a line over there? (laughs) (laughs) Obi has no feedback for what he's hearing like we do, so he doesn't know exactly how much noise he's making. It's okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Let's just think you're still there. This is a disclaimer. (laughs) I... 
I am cutting up lines of coke. I'm <laughs> so it's a long pod. We understand. Uh, <laughs> I thought coffee, but the grinder would be too noisy. <laughs> Two men driven to tell the truth, whatever the cost. 1999, directed by Mr. Michael Mann. We have The Insider. I love Michael Mann. I haven't seen The Insider. It's though. good. This is actually I very good. I really movie. like Collateral. That's like oddly one of my favorite <laughs> fucking movies. I love Collateral. You're just on a Tom Cruise kick lately? No. You know, I haven't seen Collateral in a while. Mm-hmm. I just, honestly, it's just great. I know. You know, it's just, a, it's a fan, it's a great script. It's tight. Well, what did The Insider make? Uh, Insider made 18 million bucks. Yeah, fuck Michael Mann. 1999 was a bad year for Michael Mann. Hmm. Joey. I'm going to say 52. OB? We might have froze. No, you're good. We We might have frozen. I'm sorry. No, we can hear you. Are we okay? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Uh, 44 million? $44 $44 million, says Sean O'Brien. Uh, this one came in at, um, I'm sorry, Joey, what was yours? 50. 52. 50. I'm sorry, 52. Okay. Uh, Timmer takes this one away. It came in at $29 million. Told you it wasn't a good year for him. <laughs> Damn it, I was going to say that. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely under budget, or, you know, like, didn't, you know, didn't make money back on that. Mm. I was going to say, say 28 again, but I thought that would be weird. Never weird. Always go with your. You gut. should know. T- Tim has a real inside track on Michael Mann's life. He knows exactly what he was going through at the time. So, well, the thing is, is Mike's a bit of a mentor to me. Really, that's cool. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, you know, I clean his pool. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. <laughs> last one up on the list. <laughs> Break the story, Mister Man. Break the silence. In 2015, directed by Tom McCarthy, we have. Spotlight. I knew Spotlight was going to be in here somewhere, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Fucking knew it. Should put yeah. that as a drop. So what did it make, Timmer? Uh, well, fifteen of it was mine for sure. <laughs> but uh, forty-one million dollars. Forty-one million dollars says Timmer and Joey. Seventy-eight. Seventy-eight says Joey and Sean O'Brien. Uh, I saw this movie. Back to back with room, so that was a fun Ugh, night. Man, um, yeah, geez, you hate <laughs> fun, huh? <laughs> I, I didn't know what room, was, and I and I saw it second, so I was like, "Fuck!" Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> Eighty-eight million is my guess. Million dollars, gentlemen. In 2015, Spotlight brought in forty-five million dollars. I knew Mr. that was it. Timmer was takes that one it was away. one of the awards pictures that didn't perform that year. I remember that. God, I was gonna say forty-four. Fuck this. You gotta go with the gut. And Timmer takes the game. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us. Nicely done. I yep. think it's just because Derek wasn't here. Because when Derek's here, I'm nervous. He's also good at the game. He'll he would probably win. Also that. Yeah. Okay. Winners don't matter. He probably Mostly that. Well, yeah, but if you guys know what you're watching, then you can then like you can guess the theme and you can look it up and cheat. Guess oh, the right. gross. Right, we could cheat. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I don't think any of us really care that much about this podcast though. Damn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. We love this podcast here at Podcast Studios. <laughs> Make sure to subscribe. Yeah.
Check out all the shows on the podcast network. We've got text before calling, literally, literally. Going down on South Park, politinkering this show you're listening to, Cellulite Breakdown. Uh, Wild Love, Westworld kind of stole a show. And, uh, no, yeah. listen to that. Yeah. Uh, Patreon.com slash podcast if you want to try and Politinkering actually made its uh, triumphant return not too long ago, didn't it, Sean? Yeah, uh, yeah there's one yeah. episode out. I think it's available for uh, listening at podcast.com. Usually, yeah, that's oh. where you'd find them. Oh, God. Pretty easy to type that into a search bar. I'm so in such pain. Well, fucking do something. This promotion. (laughs) Well, ever since you stopped being our sole benefactor, we're really hard up. I I see that. Just begging the audience over and over and over again. Come on. I'll treat you like I did Mr. Man. (laughs) I love that you're his pool boy. Okay. Uh, We're going to move on to everyone's favorite category, sound. So that means no one cares. Yeah. And usually what happens I is- I, Yeah, I'd usually get up and get a beer. But yeah. like, I don't know. Obi, you're very nice, but most of them, they they kind of make fun of me and they leave at this point. Yeah. Well, it's oh, just because- like Nobody cares. <laughs> well, for this film, for this film though- This film come though. On. This film though. This film does come have on. some pretty spectacular sound. Well, beyond that- Especially the cockatiel. How is it innovative, Obi? Well, Tell me. so a lot of the low angles that they did, Right. That's that's not a shot that was common in um, in studio. It's a, it's a soundstage. So they it wasn't like they normally didn't do because mm-hmm. it would reveal the fact that there's no ceiling. So you'd have to build a ceiling. There's too much money to build a ceiling. So what they did for the set design was they built the rafters and they just uh, draped muslin over it, which served two purposes. Um, the reason why it was so low um, that's where they mic'd everybody was mm. over that. So they didn't, they just mic'd them from above uh, the ceilings. Those are all just muslin. Um, I think the sound is pretty damn great for the era. I will say that it's, it's got some really impressive aspects. I was annoyed with the dialogue at some points. It's very washy. It's very reverby, very echoey at certain points, but it's all natural. And got to remember, in 1941, they didn't really have what we could use today. They didn't have plate reverbs. They barely had spring reverbs. They didn't really have echo chambers that much. They had basic shit. So they really had a lot of actual production sound really just being that space that they're in. Um, OB, you said they were in a lot of sound stages. Did they actually shoot in any other real places at all, or was it all sound stages? No. It was all soundstage. It was all an arcade. Really? Though, mm-hmm. So they built the Hearst Castle look of Xanadu? Like a space. Well, that's a plate. I mean, that was all. No, not that. <laughs> not that. I mean, the actual, like, inside, like, the, the castle part. Oh, like, yeah, that's all stage. That's just, the okay. opening shots. Oh, uh, shit. What Stop about for a second? Uh, uh, what? Okay. Uh, what about the opening shots? So are those miniatures then, or, or what are they? Because it, it looked pretty real. Yeah. It almost looked photorealistic to me. Yeah, so... No, it's, it's, um, they were chromatrans. Like they were just big paintings. They were wow. just matte paintings. Um, yeah. And a lot of the stuff that they like moved in, um, as they closer toward the castle in the background, which that like light, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the window just stays in that one spot. Yeah. Um, they, they built those other little things like the golf course, all those little, they built, they built all that shit. Um, so I know I think they're, they're like paintings. Wow. I wonder what the scale of those yeah, matte paintings would be. Be they're curious. Huge. Yeah, yeah, really they have I mean, think about the, the huge rooms, you know? Yeah. They're, those same rooms were where um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers used to do like their, their huge, you know, the big numbers and all the musicals. I can see that with like the, because mm-hmm. uh, there's that one room uh, that they're signing uh, the newspaper 
paperwork mm-hmm. in. Yeah. And, the and, great hall. Yeah. And he, well, yeah. he does that, that long walk to the end of the room to show yep. the, the crazy, uh, the cra- whatever. Yeah. The height of the window. Can absolutely yeah. see that being like a, like a huge dance hall for something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And if I can transition back to sound for a second, the uh, the reverb as he walks down the hall is pretty crazy. Like the, the that's really impressive the way they add reverb the farther he gets from camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do this also, which are one of my favorite shots is when they boom up uh, away from the uh, the stage all the way up to the top to the rafters. Mm-hmm. And as we hear the voice echoing throughout, it gets more reverby, more reflective as we get farther away from the source, which is again not like again something really revolutionary nowadays, but it's still really cool for 1941. So well, it was it was a much more difficult thing. To pull off, then oh for sure, right. absolutely. Yeah. And you, I mean, this is way before Walter Murch did, you know, The Godfather and American Graffiti and all that worldizing, where he would literally record things in the spaces and then play them back. And this is before that, right? That was nineteen, this early nineteen seventies. So this is way, mm-hmm. way, way before any of that idea mm-hmm. even came in there. So I think that was very nice. Um, apart from that, I just want to quickly go to the music. I think because the music is interesting. It's Bernard Herman. You know, we all know Bernard Herman from Hitchcock movies, Psycho, you know, Vertigo. But this is not really that. This is obviously 19 years before Psycho. Um, let me ask you, Sean, what did you think of the music kind of- Which in, Sean? In, oh, damn it, Sean Fah. I'm going to say OB <laughs> for OB. What did I think of the music? Yeah, what did you think of the music? Um, you, yes, some of it's good, some of it's bad. And I really love the want was after the comedy. Okay, so you like your <laughs> want was. All right, the, the wah-wah trumpets. Yeah, yeah. But what, okay, what was bad about it? Um, I, I, not necessarily bad, just kind of like, um, almost cliched or like, uh, just not even noteworthy in a, a few places. Um, I, like I said, I, I don't know that the, the music was necessarily the driving force of this other than, you know, the scenes that revolve around her singing. I mean, you may be right and it's not the driving force, but I think there's... Uh, there's a lot there. I do kind of agree with you that it is g- generic in many places. I think that's a lot because of the studio system at the time. Before, I forget what year it is, I apologize. They didn't even give Oscars to composers. They gave them to the musical supervisors because those people were the ones who just put it together. Like they thought that was where the artistry was. So composers weren't even really kind of supposed to be very creative. Mm. They were just supposed to kind of follow what the, the rules were. And I think that's what we're getting here. So we're getting Bernard Herrmann kind of Maybe he's just young and he's maybe just kind of trying to do his job, but he was assigned to RKO, I guess. And those were the same age, I believe. Oh, wow. So he was still kind of, yeah. yeah. So he's still trying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They they met, um, oh, fuck. I don't remember, but it was one of those kind of, you know, happenstance, whatever, like radio things. And he knew him somehow in New York uh, and brought him on. That makes sense. I feel like he's, because Bernard Herman is very, I don't want to say New York-y, but kind of Broadway, if you will. He's very big. Yeah. He's bold. Um, I liked what he was doing in some of the scenes where we, we were introduced to Xanadu. I thought there was some good, dark, deep, thematic kind of motifs. Um, but again, we're getting a little exaggerated some of, for some of those moments. But again- How th- about uh, how about his- like like Charles Foster Kane's like anthem. Like, I loved dun, 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 dun. his song. I loved his song. I thought it was <laughs> really cute. Bernard Herman. That's me too. I didn't but, know that. Okay, like, I guess you're right. And, yeah, yeah. That and the opera were both because that's what's fun about this movie. With this, a lot of it is very generic, kind of newspapery. Like it's almost satirically making fun of the 1930s yeah. like newspaper movies. Um, and then there's you know the the sort of melodrama from like of the dramas as well. But also there's the 
Latvia that he did for the the opera, um, which apparently there's a really good ver- like he did a real version of that aria in the com- like the composing of the score because in the score it's like in the movie she's supposed to be an awful singer but he, he composed a really beautiful version um and of course the the theme song so there's a lot like it's it's a yeah. lot more than just like the score you're making me appreciate a lot more for sure um do you think she was <laughs> awful yeah i want to talk about that i don't I think she's a very good singer. I think it's insane <laughs> what they're talking about. And she was, and even the note that they were trying to make <laughs> off pitch mm-hmm. was only slightly off pitch. She could have, it, <laughs> it was really close. Like, like the guy was getting super pissed off and she was like 99% perfect. Like, what the fuck are you doing? I, well, I have nowhere near perfect pitch, but it seemed like he was way further away than she was. Yeah. Well, no, he was on pitch too. Was it? Um, She was a little off for sure, but a couple of the notes were on. The thing is, he's just exaggerating. It's very strange. It's almost like it's difficult to sing off pitch for like a professional singer. Oh, yeah. I think that's what it is. And like when you're trying to do the wah, 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 you got to like kind of break your voice. Mm. And I think that's what was happening. She was almost like cracking her voice intentionally. And it seemed a little silly, but her voice was gorgeous. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, everyone's like making fun of her. Her normal speaking voice was not gorgeous. No, that's true. She has the, yeah. <laughs> Who? I want to do the fuck. I can't stand him. Yeah. Ooh, uh, Holly Hunter for uh, for her. Okay. I can see that. I can see <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Holly, like 1990s Holly Hunter? Yeah, 1993 no. Holly Hunter. Okay. <laughs> Dig. Sorry, she was in the firm. <laughs> 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 uh, I want to say also the narrator was really interesting at the beginning. I love the narrator voice. Um, I also, That's Thompson. That's Thompson himself. That is the Thompson. Who played Thompson. Yeah, he did that big, you know, kind of voice. But like, even though he has that kind of like meek voice in the in the film. Yeah, he did oh, wow. that voice. Does, I forget. His does name. Thompson, Thompson is the, the one with the really bad comb over that's just falling the fuck apart, right? The Thompson no, is no, the no, reporter. The newspaper. The, the, the main yeah, character, the, the point of view reporter. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I love that voice. It reminds me so much of South Park when they do um, the, <laughs> Eric Cartman's mother. Who is Eric Cartman's mother? <laughs> <laughs> Who is Charles Foster Kane? Yeah, it, it, it was like that. And it seems like every newsreel from the 40s had the exact same narrator and they just had to do that fucking voice. Yeah. That's that transatlantic, that, you know, accent. That newsreel is. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, uh, Obi, go ahead. The, the newsreel was a play on um, March of the World or something like that, which was a common thing that they were right. doing. Yeah. But it's such a weird, it's such a weird thing to have in the beginning of the film. And it's so structurally profound because what they basically do is they show you the entire plot of the film to end. Yep. And you're like, well, then what the fuck am I going to watch? Yep. <laughs> what is this then? And then it cuts out and it's like, well, what's Rosebud? And they're like, oh, okay, well, that's a different movie. But yeah, they show you the whole film, so they give everything away before you even start. You're like, he's a fan. <laughs> that always reminds me, or I guess one should remind of the other, but makes me think of Starship Troopers, which is another movie I love. But just the uh, that that opening newsreel sort of um, feel to it. I don't know. It just has like such a, a timeless quality to it that I. I just I love that whole concept and like that that introduction to this world that is um, 
like so of the time and it just it it feels right but it also is not overdone i don't know okay i think you might be right i i might disagree that it was a little long honestly it was mm. a bit overdone in my opinion it's long yeah it's long Dread. but it is a, i like but it's the, the whole technique. movie <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of in a way yeah all right well let's talk the about first it first time oh go ahead Dobie. the first this mo- that movie or this movie um, I don't, I was, I was very young. It was like a VHS copy. Um, and yeah, the new Israel was all I really remember. And I'm like, this movie fucking sucks. Man. What is this piece of shit? <laughs> yeah. Like pretty soon after, actually, I don't even think I got that far. And then the second time I tried to watch it, same, I mean, I was probably 16. Actually I was, I was 16. It was the year two, it was like 2000. It was, um, the, the lead up to, it was, I guess it was 1999. Um, it was the like Y2K. Um, and I watched it that like whatever that that break that uh, that winter break, mm-hmm. and I tried I tried to watch it, but I hated it. And I tried again years later, and I'm like, fuck this fucking movie, man. <laughs> I think once you like, do it get past I it, sat down and watched it. Yes, once you get past it, it, it does get a hell of a lot better. Once you get into yeah. characters and you meet them and you see them and you you get the structure, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on though, because I mean, I can say a little bit more about some of the backgrounds and the effects. They're pretty good. Let's just say they're great for the times, but let's what? move on. Oh, oh, go ahead. You got something? No, no. Well, I'm there sorry. was one, there, I, I wonder if you'll even remember, there was one scene that ends like a Radiohead song and it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I think I know you're talking about. You know? And it, uh, yeah, the, the sound design just non-diegetically sort of just goes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so this is my favorite shot. We've talked about it already, but the, the boom up. Well, after, That's what it the was. So after, after oh. the stage and they boom up, we get the joke from, yeah, yeah. from the two stage hands. And then we get some little, little deglissando down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is awesome. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. I, it was way ahead of its time. And it was Brave. funnier, honestly, than the wah-wah trumpets. Like it was sold yeah. the joke better than the cheesy trumpets. So I know. You didn't, I you didn't like the, you didn't like, the squawk, though, huh? The wah wah. You mean that? No, no, no. The, no, the, the cockatiel. The, 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 the parrot. Oh, the, my the God. I, I thank you for reminding me. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny. As I have you written know down. that. Go ahead. Tell well, me about the squawk. Ahead. No, no. I want to know about the before I start ranting. Was it was it to wake so, people up if they were sleeping? <laughs> it literally was exactly that. Yes. Get oh, the fuck out of here. Oh, cool. I swear to God. It was, it was exact. So, like, Wells. Um, and this is according to, I guess it was Roger Ebert, I think, uh-huh. um, you know, I don't know exactly how, or maybe it was Peter Bergdanovich who mentioned this, I don't, whatever. Um, the, yes, like toward the end of the film, he assumed people would be like falling asleep. And so he's, they're like, okay, if you want, you wanted to know what Rosebud was. So he fucking cranked it to wake people up. Literally. Son of a yes, bitch. You know what? It was intentional. All right. And that makes me even pissed. <laughs> you know, why did you do that? <laughs> sorry. That I'm very sorry. reason. Because okay. it's just punk well rock, said. dude. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is what I wrote. I'm going to write, just read you what I wrote in my notes. WTF, scary jump scare parrot almost destroyed my hearing and my livelihood. <laughs> my disappointment is immeasurable I, and my day I, is ruined. <laughs> I, will, I will be writing an angry word, a strongly worded letter to the director of this film. <laughs> Uh, yeah, what are you doing? That's not okay. Don't do that. Just don't do that, okay? You can't just scream in my face. Also, it's a scary parrot. I don't understand why you had a fucking parrot. Uh, all right. It's just, yeah, I can't really say too much more. It just pissed me off. Um, I get it. I get you want to wake people up. It's kind of cool now that you say that. But maybe that was the first jump scare. Is that the first jump scare? 
can't be. No. No, 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 no. no. That'd be like, like Nosferatu's got jump scares, dude. Oh, okay. Well, it's a silence. True. <laughs> so, so does it. You'd have to have the orchestra would do would be the uh, they could like, they could have like well a there big would be sting. a swell when Nosferatu rises eh yeah they could eh? yeah no sure. for sure like the orchestra there would have conducted uh-huh. it to try and scare mm-hmm. the audience perhaps but at it's least not sound. I don't know that's a that's a technical question I don't know what would have been <laughs> the first jump scare in a sound film that'd okay. be an interesting thing if only we had like this endless access to information yeah. that would tell us. <laughs> But we don't. The collected so works of, the, of human knowledge at our fingertips. Yeah. A, a veritable library of Alexandria, if you will. But we don't. So moving nope. on. <laughs> uh, one last thing. The uh, the typewriter that uh, that Charles Foster Kane uses to correct the review of his wife is probably the loudest typewriter of all time. Well, I am like I was mentioning during the movie that yeah. I met. I think he had a megaphone next to the typewriter to really drive it home. Right. That, like, <laughs> Fuck you! I'm yeah. fixing your, your own asshole. shitty review. <laughs> you fell asleep writing it, so now it's mine, bitch. That's what it sounds like to type in caps. <laughs> <laughs> they um, if I and that they always said that um, Jed Leland, the Joseph Cotton's character, was. Based on a friend of Orson Welles's, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember his name, but uh, I actually think that that's wrong. I think it's way more based on her, um, on the screenwriter himself. Um, um, he, he was a newspaper reporter for Chicago Tribune, and di- he got fired from one of the newspapers uh, because he, he was a dramatic critic and he fell asleep. <laughs> he was like, he passed out. He passed out writing one of the fucking things and they couldn't wake him up. So there was a, there was a, like a, a, a literal like review in the paper that was like, we will review this play tomorrow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. So, yeah. He got so, fired after like. <laughs> so I have a question now is Leland Menkovitz, Menkovitz, Menkovitz. Mag- uh, Herman, Mag- yeah. Shit, Man- Menkovitz. 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 You can see the W. Menkovitz. Yeah. Yeah. There's Herman, Herman Menkovitz. Menkowitz. And then there's Tom, there's Ben Menkowitz who does all the Turner classic movies shit. Um, Tom Bankowitz wrote uh, Superman 2. He was actually was my teacher at Chapman um, before he died. Was Superman 2 uh, the one with Zod? Yes. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, I think, so. I think so. I think everybody... Is it not an exact... I think Leland is closer to Bankowitz. It's, it's, if you had to like pinpoint any of them, yes. Um, Leland is Bankowitz. So he was writing himself being a drunk moron falling asleep at the typewriter? Mm-hmm. I think so. That's Retribution. Cool. And then, like the big scene when he's drunk at the end, like, you know, that the, you know, when I, before Leland quits or leaves. Mm-hmm. One of the most documentary scenes in the film. <laughs> I'm yeah. drunk. Or how about how how Leland had the time to cut up his entire playbill into perfect rectangles? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the Langoliers scene. He's gorgeous. (laughs) I mean, he's an origami master. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. Joseph Cotton uh, in that the scene. Oh, sorry. No, please keep it coming. Keep it coming. Way too much. No, No, keep it coming. Never enough. Keep going. All right. Well, so. Fine. So, so for that one scene where um the the where he and Foster K- or he and uh, Kane are arguing, um and you know it's that crazy low end. Really did have to dig up the floor of the RKO soundstage in order to get the camera that low. Um, but more importantly, Joseph Cotton hadn't slept the entire day before that. 
Um, so he had been up for, you know, almost 48 hours. Um, going into that scene, which kind of played well for him being drunk, but they needed to rush through it. They had to get it, get him out because he needed to go um, to star on Broadway for, oh, the Philadelphia story, ironically, <laughs> another newspaper story. He was starring in that with, um, I don't remember who, but whatever. Catherine Hepburn. So yeah, they had, to, they had to rush through that. And that's why when he makes that mistake, they leave it in and he kind of plays well. Yeah, I think it was Catherine Hepburn. Cary Grant? Uh, no, he, he he wasn't in the movie. Oh, not the it movie. Was the, 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 the play. play. He was doing the play. I'm, yeah, I don't oh, remember who he was supposed to be co-starring with. But yeah, he had to, the reason that they like they had to rush through that anyway. So it kind of just... I think in the movie he was opposite Denzel. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good, good call. Okay, we're going to move on. Good we're going to move on to Sean. <laughs> Tell us about the visuals, Sean. They, John Fall. It, it was a film. Okay. What did it look like? <laughs> did you see it? L- looked like film. <laughs> looked good. Looked like looked yeah. like good film. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is one of the most talked about cinematic masterpieces of you know history. Uh, <laughs> so yes, there's like like O'Brien was talking about earlier. There's a lot of innovation in this movie, and uh, mostly because it's just kind of they don't have a whole lot of money, and I don't know I can't do things. So they put cameras in places that people didn't normally put cameras, um, mostly just for the fuck of it. Uh, They would dig holes and do really wide shots and do really untraditional coverage of things that just, um, you know, would... I, I, I have trouble with it because... I do personally prefer things to be motivated. And a lot of this movie, the cinematography is more um, innovative and interesting than it is necessarily intrinsic to the story. So there's a lot of like really wide shots that um, are really low angles that are, you know, almost like stage plays where we're, Look, we're we're very low looking up at this these characters that are just kind of looming larger than life. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 I, yeah, I don't know. I go I back the, and forth on that. Yeah. Well, one one thing that you might like about that though, Faz, if you, theoretical point of view, I think he, I think that it's he's making fun of them. You know what I mean? He's making them seem larger than life while also showing how ridiculous they are. That's true. Those so moments, it has that sort of. Yeah, the, it's, it's almost their their downfall moments that those are the the times that he chooses to go to those angles. So, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. So there is some motivation maybe in in there. We, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, there's motivation in everything, but like it, to me, it's. Is it driven by story, though? I think it's Sean's question, right? Right, right. It gotcha. is, yeah, and it's almost there is a consistency, there is a language to it. Uh, there is um, there is fun elements to it, but it's I don't know. It's it's a little bit like just kind of esoteric at times, you know, just kind of fanciful for fanciful sake. May I ask you a question, Sean? No. Uh, do you think no. that? Uh, well, I'm going to ask you anyways, yeah. and I've been like, I'm not really a guest anymore, mm. so I can't. Oh, God. I'm pulling. Just fucking talk. I'm going to drag this out a little <laughs> further. 
Well, you're George. the one who, like, also, you fucked up my train of thought again. <laughs> <laughs> Every episode, dude. Do you think that movies like Apocalypse Now or um, Blade Runner would look the way that they looked if Citizen Kane didn't get made? Oh, obviously, it's extremely influential. And, the, you know, those those types of questions are completely unanswerable because, you know, once, mm-hmm. if, they, if they didn't do it in Citizen Kane, this, you know, it would have been done somewhere else and whether or not, you know, it would have made its way up to these things. Hmm. So, yes, um, a lot of people take a lot of things from this, but to say that they necessarily um, invented anything mm-hmm. is... Well, it's the same question of just like, do you think that Motley Crue would have happened if the Beatles didn't happen? Right, right. You know? And again, it, it's the same wishy-washy answer, though. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, just like, you know, somebody would have done it eventually. Right, right. You they know, just they, did it first. Well, it's, it, to me, it always goes back to like that idea of uh, Alexander Graham Bell in the, um, the patent office. So like mm-hmm. Alexander Graham Bell won the, the patent for the telephone by like an hour. Someone else had put in that same exact patent an hour later, and mm-hmm. he just happened to be the winner. Wow. It's like these ideas just kind of are there and around and ready mm-hmm. to be put together. So to say that if this hadn't happened, these things wouldn't exist in the future to me is like, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to say that. No, that that's is. actually pretty astute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree too. I think it's, it's okay to give them credit, right? It's okay yeah. to say Greg Toland is the first, but you're right. Maybe yeah, if he wasn't around, someone else five years yeah. down the line could. Somebody would have started messing around with the possibilities of where the camera can go. Exactly. Yeah, digging a hole for the camera is not necessarily something that no one else would think no. of. It's not. It's, it's just, not a deeply creative idea either. It's just like, uh, uh, what are we going to do today? I guess we'll dig a fucking hole. Yeah. Like, but it, I mean, it works in this context, and mm-hmm. it works for the cinema. But it is. Um, you know, it's like putting two things together that already exist. Someone else would have mm. dug a hole for a camera. Yeah, that's well, that's so, fair. did yeah. yeah that, the that was not it. The the biggest innovation. There were two huge innovations um, for the visuals for this film. The first one was the deep focus. So Orson Welles wanted um, that. That's the of all. Um, in much in, in the same way that stage, which basically influences the entire direction and photography of the film. You want well, to be able to see everything. Play. He's like, on mm-hmm. the stage, you can see everything. So right. why don't we do it that way? He's a stage so director. What, so. what, mm-hmm. what he did was, um, Greg Toland was given the sort of the the, the freedom to, exper- to experiment with um, deep focus. So the, the, the background is well, was crazily in order to kind of make sure that that was in focus as well. So with this combination of lenses and also the film itself, uh, uh, and a lot of mats. They did a lot of different mats uh, and and rear projection in the film. There's there are in the show. There's a lot of special effects in this movie, like an insane amount of special effects. Um, Honestly, and I... in order to basically make it, go ahead. In order to make it look all deep focus, um, or to do things that that are impossible to do. So there's the one scene right after Susan Alexander Kane uh, tries to kill herself. The foreground of the, the the glass and the spoon and the the the, the pills are in focus, um, and the background is in focus. Ground is out of focus, which mm-hmm. is not a, a photographically achievable thing. Um, so it's little, in, and that happens a lot. There's little innovations like that 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 do really tell the story. Um, the other huge innovation. Before I move on to that, do, you, do what are you going to say, Sean? No idea. 
Okay. The other huge innovation, which again comes from stage, um, are the long shots. The only other film that had experimented with that was The Rules of the Game. Years earlier, ah, the French film by fucking Renoir. Yeah. Le Regle Jeu, whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and that, I'm, I'm not even sure anybody, anyone had seen that film, to be honest with you. I'm sure that they did, but for the most part, and Orson Welles sat in the screening room of RKO and they watched Stagecoach, which also is what uh, Greg Tolan shot, Stagecoach. Um, so they just watched that and Orson Welles would ask, you know, what lens is that? How'd you do that? What's going on there? Just, what happened with that shot with John Wayne? Why is it out of focus? <laughs> <laughs> that fucking shot. We did Stagecoach. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, there you go. Perfect. Um, so yes, but but uh, the the movement, the the long takes are the are the second biggest innovation by far. Um, there's the childhood scene. That's all yeah. two shots. So that entire sequence is two shots. They move, um, you know, they move the table out of the way in order to get the camera to move through out through the window. They go out the window. They, there's the only cut. Um, when they move up over, they th- they go through the um, for right before Susan Alexander when she's in the nightclub, they they rise up and they go through the sign. They have to like you know, separate the sign so the camera can get through it, and then they go down and they they make it look like it goes through the glass, and then boom, down from there. Um, again, the, those long takes were not something that you ha- you would have seen in a Hollywood film. Um, this- as far as the visuals are concerned and everything, I mean, beyond all the other innovations for it, um, like the silent era was all just a bunch of experimental indie filmmakers, right? And that that was finally perfected and all the innovations and different things that people kn- didn't even know they could do came to a head and finally were all put in like Birth of a Nation. That's why Birth of a Nation is always so fucking as racist and horrible as it is. It's always heralded as like a piece of film history kind of perfected that language. Um, but where do you go from there? Well, sound was introduced like another 10 years later. So then it took another kind of like 10 years to build up to 1939, which was the perfect kind of Hollywood studio era year where perfect, the kind of like special effects were perfect. The grandeur was perfect. Um, as far as the visuals though, it was still kind of cookie cutter, right? As many, as, as many cool shots as you find in another fucking classically racist film, Gone with the Wind, you, where do you go from there? And that's where Citizen Kane steps in. It, it literally changed the way people made movies. And we're still living in that era. We still haven't gotten out of the era of Citizen Kane. I think one thing I wanted to touch on was uh, you talked a little bit about the special effects there. And this viewing specifically, um, I don't feel like the effects held up as much on the HD Blu-ray remastered version we were oh, watching. Oh, interesting. Um, I, this this viewing more so than any other time I watched it. I really felt the presence of a stage. Um, I really felt like the I, I felt like I saw the back wall when we were watching him sledding down the hill in the snow. I felt like we you know saw the the uh, the sort of uh, confines of mm-hmm. that studio system. Mm-hmm. Um, more so in this than like even, well, than definitely the times I remember watching it on film or things like that. So I think just that, that digital crispness 
almost goes to hurt things. Like I think it hurts the makeup. I think it hurts the, um, you know, a lot of the the plates and like a lot of the effects that they were going for by seeing them so crisply these days. Um, I, as some of that magic is is gone, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, one more small innovation that I was just reading about right now is that they played music on set, which mm. is really, really smart, uh, especially the end when Rose. Yeah, Bunn's not burning. an innovation. They did that during Silent. That's true. But <laughs> I still, uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't just don't call them that. Just yeah. say using good technique. Exactly. And that's, uh, and that's something that we can all take. You know, it's a good idea, especially if you have the time to give your composer ahead of time to compose something for a vignette or a scene. You can play it on set and now it's perfectly choreographed. We're seeing a lot of these movies now, Baby Driver, Guardians of the Galaxy, that are perfectly timed to the music and it's because they took the time to plan out for it and write it into the script. So I would definitely recommend doing that as well. Yeah, Obi, do you know how they did the the middle ground out of focus shot? Yeah, it's a mat. So the first shot okay. um, is just the the cup and the table is one shot and they matted that out and the entire back the second shot is the one where they use a longer lens gotcha. so they can keep the foreground out of focus mm. and then they just matted beautiful well now you know <laughs> and knowing is half the battle <laughs> and guys we're about to know a little bit more because we're about to play one more game Yay. Yay. okay It's called Guess the Oscar Picks for now. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to do the top four categories of the 1941 Oscars, although the, you know, 1942, obviously. So, uh, they didn't do that? What do you mean? They did. It's just ama- it amazes me that we. We've done a lot of 40s yeah. pictures. It, it's surprising that we didn't do this we year might yet. Have done this. No, I don't think so, though. I, don't, I really don't think so. I mean, Luckily, we can I don't count remember on, anything. We can count on the certainty that if we did, we've forgotten. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go with best actor. We have Cary Grant for Penny Serenade, Gary Cooper for Sergeant York, Walter Houston, All That Money Can Buy, Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, or Robert Montgomery, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. I'm going to be uh, hanging with Mr. Cooper. I'm going to go Grant. OB? Uh, most, Cooper. The most beautiful Cooper. man. The answer is Gary Cooper for Sergeant York. Oh, yeah. Highest grossing film that year. Wow. I would like to see Sergeant York. I've never seen it. OB, is it good? I've never seen it. Is it similar or different to Sergeant Bilko? Or has anybody, nobody seen it? Mm. That's, it's the same. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Yeah. Okay. okay, best actress. Barbara Stanwyck, Ball of Fire. Greer Garson, Blossoms in the Dust. Joan Fontaine, Suspicion, Betty Davis, The Little Foxes, or our favorite, Olivia de Havilland, <laughs> Hold Back the Dawn. You hear that, Olivia? I'm going to go Betty Davis. I'm going to go Greer. OB? What, what was the Betty Davis one for? The Little Foxes. That one. The answer is Joan Fontaine oh, for Suspicion. That's what you get for stealing my answer. Damn it. <laughs> he's into it. Throw your hands for the first time too. Uh, okay, so this is best director. We have Howard Hawks for Sergeant York, William William oh. Wyler, The Little Foxes, Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, John Ford, How Green Was My Valley, and Alexander Hall for Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Mm. Ford. Well, we know who it isn't. Yeah, they fucked. Or- <laughs> they fucked Orson. Mm. Poor Orson. So who was it, Tim? It was Howard Hawks. Mm. Obi, Weiler, Hawks, Hall, Wells, Ford. 
thought it was Liam Weiler. It was John Four, but I'm going to go with Weiler. Answer is John Four. Damn it. Yeah, Sean that makes Paul. sense. Picture that, director. That Green oh, Valley. Sorry. How green was my valley? Yeah. It yeah. sounds like a porno. I'm sorry. Yep. It just, it's that's it's why I remember valley? it. That's why it sticks in my head. No, no you're right. I, why thought, was it, I thought Green, green Valley was the long-awaited sequel to Hidden Valley. <laughs> that is such an inside joke. Nobody <laughs> ever... Yeah, nobody continue that, please. Okay. Let us let that die in the pine. Uh, Hidden Valley, an outstanding motion picture. But, it is, yeah. You know, we're about to hear the most directed outstanding. Directed by a true friend. <laughs> 1941. Here it is. Here's the list. Best picture. The Little Foxes. The Maltese Falcon. One Foot in Heaven. Suspicion. Sergeant York. Hold Back the Dawn. Here Comes Mr. Jordan. How Green Was My Valley. Blossoms in the Dust. And Citizen Kane. Mm. Maltese Falcon. I'm also going to go Maltese. Uh, it was How Green Was My Valley. Oh, that's correct. It is Damn How it. Green Was My Valley. I'll pass. Yeah. I was going to pick Maltese Falcon. Hope just knew that, I love it? that movie. It okay. should be. It should be Maltese Falcon. It's a good one. That was Guest the Oscars. Yeah. yeah. If it was not going to be fucking like Citizen Kane, then it would have to be a Maltese Falcon, but fucking How Green Was My Valley. Fuck that movie. Yeah. This dude, Hal B. Wallace, a famous producer back then for Casablanca, other things, was nominated for three of the best picture movies that year. Three of them. Sergeant York, One Foot in Heaven, and The Maltese Falcon. He produced them all. Everything was so self-contained back then. Yeah. Every studio had their man, you know? Yeah. I mean, there were 10 people that did each job. Yeah. (laughs) The Oscar... Fun trivia fact for you guys. Uh, Do you know who the first... Who was... Um, I don't know the best way to ask this for best actor the very first year um, does anyone know a weird anomaly in that list mm. 1927 no anomaly in the list. I do not uh, no tell us Obey. and oh, right. the dog was nominated for yeah. the best actor isn't that, isn't that the only time a dog yeah. has been it was, yeah the Academy Awards started as just a way to fucking to stave to off a strike. Oh. No, it was it was worse than that. It was to like to calm fucking to calm the like the 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 peon down because mm-hmm. they were all just like you know they were all just working hands. Yeah, because um, ev- everyone the- wanted money, yeah. and they said, "Hey, let's have a celebration instead." So maybe nominating a dog yeah. was kind of a fuck you by them, because like, yeah, it was, yeah. like yes. yeah, if you Pretty guys much. want your your participation medal so bad, sure, but like maybe the dog <laughs> earned one too. You know, <laughs> great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, all right, guys, quickly, before we finish this up, I want to do one small game here. I would like you to pick the greatest non-human actor, the greatest non-human acting performance. Oh. Dude, that's so fucking easy. Let's I'm going to go it. last. Oh, okay. Sean? Damn. Um, one that really comes to mind is Mr. Ed. That's true. That's very good. It's not a film, but okay. It was shot on it's film. committed to film. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's on uh, celluloid. We're breaking it down. <laughs> OB, do you have an answer? Uh, I accept this, but may I say the HAL 9000 from 2001? No. No, that's not okay. an animal, dude. No. Maybe like oh, the octopus from Sphere. Plus, it's a shitty I just movie. Non-human. Non- He's such a smart non-human. guy. Yeah. Oh, non-human. Oh, that's some shit. He's fucking yeah. liar. I, you know I don't what? Know. Honestly, uh, I, no, 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 no. I now retract. <laughs> Ob, you can do Hal Nine Thousand. He is non-human. <laughs> oh, okay. Non-human. He oh, lawyered his way into it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, I have two answers. One, I was thinking Willie from Free Willie. Uh, Kicked yeah. ass. Good. And two, Dunstan from Dunstan Checks. God damn it. Dunstan was mine. <laughs> damn it. I'm so sorry. In, immediately, it was just like fucking easy, dude. Dunstan. Like, it's fucking Dunstan. Are you kidding? Like, do you remember the greenhouse scene? Dunstan. Like, <laughs> give him a, a best, yeah, like, a, a lifetime achievement award. Yeah, and you got, you got that little kid from uh, 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 the Santa Claus. Jonathan Taylor Thomas? No, the other one. I don't know. No, he had no future. He works at like a Jiffy Lube now. But... <laughs> Sorry to all the Jiffy Lube workers. <laughs> you know, for a couple of years there, you know, he's shining bright. It's better than me. Yeah, a little shooting star just and gone. <laughs> There's also Babe. Oh, babe. that's true, Babe. Babe's... The mice from Babe. Yeah. You know? Once yeah. we get into the the animation, though, is that really a performance? That's no, you know, no, no. And uh, and you know what? Honestly, nobody really picked the actual clear answer, which is uh, Toto. Mm. Oh yeah, you know yeah. that dog has yeah. a fucking grave in the Hollywood Cemetery, dude. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. Nope, and it's you know, actually, actually buried, buried under like a highway in Iowa or something. <laughs> it's, it's but, a, no, 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 no. It's the um the on if you're going if you're getting onto the 101 from Laurel Canyon. As you're going, if you're getting on the westbound, uh, that's right where he was buried originally. So dude. So yeah. someone yeah. dug him up and put him in Iowa? No, somebody just built. No, 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 no. They, I was just they built wrong. a freeway. They built, I knew they built a freeway over him. I oh. thought it was somewhere else. Isn't okay. that where no, Monkey Island was? The one, it's the fucking 101 right there. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. If you're going to yeah. go westbound on, on the, you know, from. Yeah. You know, we treat, <laughs> we treat animals so well. You know, if you think about like the history of animals in space and how they all only have a one-way flight. You well, know? At least space is for some noble we, science. Like, thanks, thanks, Toto. Here's a freeway over your grave. Well, I, I would point to Milo and Otis as being sort that of one a- was fucked. I loved that movie as a kid, and then when I had that revelation of just like what they really did, how many Milos they went yeah, through. It's like, yeah, at two, Dudley. I'm sorry, but why do, why do dogs need graves? I'm sorry. What, what's what's up with this? Have you seen the film? I'll tell you why dogs need graves. Because mm-hmm. Errol Pet Morris cemetery. articulated it. Not Pet Cemetery, but uh, Gates of Heaven. <laughs> the best oh, yeah. documentary ever made. Really? Yeah. Very true. Errol Holy Morris's shit, Gates, of, Gates yep. of Heaven is the finest. It's the it's one of the most profound statements on humanity ever made. I think. Absolutely. Um, but it's, all, it's, it's a documentary about... A man who makes a pet cemetery, and it's about his struggle to do so, uh, and uh, it focuses on some main people that uh, that had their animals interred at said cemetery, and also it focuses on a, a local uh, uh, animal processor, a hmm. uh, guy that owns an animal processing plant, basically the place where your horsey goes, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's I just a that. beautiful film. It's beautiful. It's, yeah, shook shit up. Werner Herzog ate a shoe over it. I recently learned... <laughs> I remember that. I remember. Yeah. Very true. That's right. A lot of her down, not wrong. Yeah. I recently learned the only reason we bury people six feet deep is because the plague was confusing and we thought that's where it came from. Yes. Really? Yeah. We thought the plague was spread by dead bodies. So they just buried them deeper. Bit of a errata on graves as well mm-hmm. is uh, that uh, I forget which plague or disease this was, but there was something that would kind of create like a false death. Mm-hmm. And they would have people get buried and they would w- wake up buried alive and they would find people in their coffins with like right. scratch marks and shit. And they're like, oh my yes. God, yep. Grandma. Uh. You know, and so they put little bells, <laughs> ringy dingy dingy. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was that? You're right. Yeah. I remember yeah, I that. forget what, what the disease that? was, but it created like some sort of false death. Yeah. The the problem yeah, was though the um even with the bell system, yeah. they would even if you were able to ring the bell, by the time they dug back to you, you were dead anyway. Bit of a pain in the ass yeah. to dig six <laughs> right. feet. It's like, all right, be patient. They get there. We're going to be there in two Bucket. forest gumps. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to breathe too much. Breathe into the bell hole. <laughs> it's like that scene in Panic Room. Be like Jenny. <laughs> Okay, so I hate to do this, guys. I know you hate talking about politics and modern society, but we have to have this conversation. only it wasn't so glaring. (laughs) OB, I'm just going to say politicians keep. (laughs) OB, I'm just going to throw it to you. Is Trump Kane? Or maybe a better question uh, would be what does wishes. what does Trump <laughs> a better question would be what what does Trump have in common with Kane or what could Trump learn you know, from Kane if he could learn facts? I hate so I, I had forgotten about that until this or this until this very morning. Um, there's a there's footage of Trump being talking about Citizen Kane actually, unbelievable, and it's the and it's he says it it's in in the way ever and. Look it up, but basically, um, without being verbatim, uh, he basically says uh, he's like, well, you know, Citizen Kane is, is one of the one of the great movies of all time. You know, he's one of the greatest, and, and you know, with the Rosebud, you think Rose, and uh, no, you know, nobody, nobody probably, nobody actually knows who this is, but uh, you know, it's uh, what it actually because probably nobody does, but uh, it's uh, it's actually about his childhood, it's about his lost childhood, and I remember watching that being like, fuck, what? Fuck Wait, he knew that. He knew that Rosebud yeah, was his lost childhood. He got it, and he says it in this like really pro, and he in this bizarrely humanizing like moment. And if you watch this clip, it's actually kind of see him sort of connect to Kane, and he has said that it, this is his favorite film of all time. Um, and it sucks because it's true. And so yeah, <laughs> I Trump absolutely in Charles Foster Kane. A hundred percent. So in the, Mary Trump's book is about to come out soon, his niece. Uh-huh. And in it, I don't, obviously I don't know anything in it specifically, but she talks about how he was abused by, by his father. Um, and I couldn't help thinking constantly about how Kane has that lost childhood and so does Trump. And you mentioned it right there. I didn't know that, but that is so crazy. It's that just, is, yeah. it's just well, absolutely the, true. There's it's like also the most the, humanizing thing I've ever heard about that fucking guy. True. I know. There, there's the allusion to Cain uh, being beaten by his father in this. So his father or his governor? No, his father. So when oh, oh his drunk dad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when okay, when okay. when he's being sent away by yeah. his mom to the bank. Be sold to the bank, whatever. <laughs> There's no way that guy didn't touch him. Also. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but when the bank man Easy, comes okay. to take the kid. <laughs> Uh, th- there's there's a line about like uh, you were sending him away so you can't get to him or something or so that you can't beat him more. I'll be as tickled at this uh, idea. <laughs> it happened. No, I remembered it when happened. I remembered when you said it while we were watching and it was good thing. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh shit, that's true, man, Mr. Thatcher. Yeah. Probably, also, Mr. Thatcher, probably. Jonathan Price. Mm. Oh, good call. Yeah. 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 The yeah. weird yeah. beady eyes. Yeah. 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 I'm down. 
Yes. So, wow, that's amazing. Okay, so Trump has seen, not only seen Citizen Kane, it's his favorite movie, and he absolutely understands the the moral of the story. But still- He doesn't quite apply it to himself. What do you think Trump's rosebud is? Or maybe, yeah, that's that was going to be my next question. Well done. What do you, Great let, you, you answer that question first. What do you think? What do I think what, Trump's what, rosebud yeah, is? Yeah, what is this? Honestly, I don't know enough about the fellow's life to <laughs> say, but I assume- Make one up. Well, I, you know, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what it was that Fred beat out of him, you know, to make him so, to, to put that, to quote, uh, to quote, um, Val Kilmer, you know, some people just have a big hole right up in the middle of them, you know, and nothing could ever fill it up, you know. It's a profound man. I'm just saying, you know, so yeah. like something had to create, something had to bore that in him. And I, I don't, you know, maybe it was, um, a, maybe I think it was a, maybe it was a rock and sock, rock and sock and robot. Oh, that's good. Stretch Armstrong. I was thinking it's a pet. I, my guess is it's mm. a pet. He doesn't have a dog now though. It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is what I think. I think back then he had a dog or something and it was sick and his dad was like, fuck it, we're killing him. We're putting him down or something like that. And he was so traumatized by that, that he like you never just, had a pet again. You know, you're just telling the story of to Tim. these podcasts and I'll tell, yeah. Cause like that happened to me when I was a fucking kid. I had That's to kill the story my cat. Told. <laughs> yeah, I know. But yeah. I don't think it's just you. I think it's, I think there's a lot of like pet trauma. I, I like guess. pets now though, still. <laughs> <laughs> well, things affect different people differently. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> you do, you do hunt and you do. I don't hunt. You don't hunt? No, no. Actually, that experience was what led me to go vegetarian and vegan for so many years. And I'll eventually go back someday when I got like more money, hopefully. <laughs> uh, OB, if you had to guess uh, what his rosebud is, Donald Trump's rosebud, what would it be? Uh, Ivanka's pussy? Wow. Oh! Wow. <laughs> but like it has to be something he hasn't had in a while, though. You know, I know. I know. Like, um, <laughs> hey man, is this that podcast? Are, wow. we, the, <laughs> are we those guys? You know, I mean, like Baron's holding the camera and hold. The, I think the only reason that actually made me think that is the the real reason for Rose, like the the histo- like William Randolph Hearst over it over Rosebud. Are you guys familiar with this story? No, no. Whoa. Okay. Sorry. I thought this was common knowledge. Tell us. Okay. Um, so Gore Vidal is the one who kind of made this claim. Uh, he was a newspaper man along with like Mankiewicz and all them. Uh, what he said was, and one of the reasons that Randolph, William Randolph Hearst was so pissed off was that um, Rosebud was actually the pet name that William Randolph Hearst had for Marion Davies. Uh, he called it the tender button. So her clitoris. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's the rumor. That was the, you know, Gore Vidal like spread. Um, and n- no one actually knows if it's true, but that's what, you know, Marion Davies was a, was a drinker along with them. And with all those fast talking newspaper guys, it's, Likely that it's true. And that's, that's like some the, Danny the, Thomas the Richard Gears thing. Stuff. Honestly, it's weird yeah, it's that a guy famous. back then knew where the rosebud was. <laughs> <laughs> very good point. What, what the mean? mysterious like, rosebud. Needs less. <laughs> <laughs> the mythical. <laughs> uh, just, I mean, she was a she was a redhead though too. So I think that might have just been like you know, Gorvidal might have been mm, overly specific. It might have uh, just been her like genitalia in general. Rose but Bush. that was the joke I was trying to make that. And based on everyone's reaction, it landed. Um, but 
Well, thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it would be something specific. I mean, I think that just a, a father, don't forget Fred Trump was the one who was Donald's older brother who Mary Trump was Fred's daughter. Um, he was, Fred Trump was pushed out of the company. Um, and Fred would just constantly, you know, berate Fred senior would constantly junior, like, why can't you be more like Donald? You know, mm-hmm. basically kind of embarrass him in front of in front of everybody again this is based on mary trump's book um and so and fred trump ended up the fred trump jr ended up drinking himself um so that guilt alone could could lead to some you know added psychological shit um when you tack onto the fact that trump's a fucking you know narcissistic sociopath (laughs) on top of it all so never really got love, but couldn't feel love in the first place. So it's only kind of cruelty. Well, I, I mean, it's I don't hard buy to say. That. I don't know. I don't buy I, that. I think he might have been able to feel love. I, I know baby is born fucked up. I don't up. believe he's a sociopath. I believe he's a narcissist. He can be both, but I, I no, because like so, sociopaths are like he's not. He's too easily hurt. He's too. He's not impervious. You know, sociopaths are impervious because you mean nothing to them. We mean everything to him. You know, he's in pain every moment of his life. I uh-huh. believe, I firmly believe that. You know, it's possible. Yeah, I think that that's fair. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I would say that he could, you know, develop sort of sociopathic tendencies as yeah. he gets old. I wouldn't disagree I with that. He would have been. I don't. I think that that's. It's fair to say that he was not. I think though. I think that the. Be. But I don't know. I think what what's more likely is that you just find a lot of comorbidity in uh, in signs of narcissism and signs of sociopathy or sociopathy. Um, yeah, that's fair. And so you know we're seeing signs of his narcissism that are you know comorbid with uh, uh-huh. uh, socio sociopathy or whatever the fuck you know mm-hmm. and assigning sociopathic traits to it. Yeah. Really, it's just like markers. Know, it's just yeah, it's just a child that's like just like why is nobody sure. looking at me. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and it comes it be. comes from that place of fear. I think. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sean, oh sorry, Sean Fa. Sean Fa. What do you think about his rosebud? If, if Donald Trump is going to whisper one word before he dies, what is it going to be? One oh, great word. Great question. Um, if she wasn't my daughter. I think we would have dated. It really might be Ivanka. <laughs> Honestly, Ivanka is such a good answer. <laughs> He said that on national television <laughs> multiple times. Yeah, I yeah, I think it would be something more general like uh like love me or uh you know no. love me. <laughs> I think love it's me. I think it's, well, it's always like you know he's going to it's going to be something that a kid would have, you know. So it'll be it'll, it'll be something that that's tied to a home that he might have had to leave cuz I'm you know, he went to a boarding school, you know. So like what was the last thing that he had at home before he went to boarding school. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be something innocuous, something really yeah. small. You're probably right. You Maybe know, yeah. like play horse offer, or something. Yeah, it could have been a cereal spoon or something, you know. Yeah, you're right. And May I offer he, just I I would I hope it I hope it's actually this just because I think it'd be funny. Um just tremendous. <laughs> it'd be tremendous. Hmm. Oh tremendous is the word. The word, yeah. Oh. <laughs> His last word. I thought you meant his word would be tremendous. That I was waiting for your word. Tremendous. No, no. Yeah. Tremendous. I literally, I, I, I think just tremendous. That's actually right. really awesome. That if is. you were to write, if you were to write his story, yeah. OB, I would say that's a great ending. Line. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. 
Okay, <sighs> that's depressing. <laughs> I'm really depressed that <laughs> he understands <laughs> this. Like, this is the like worst. A, that's the worst part of this like entire podcast. Tiny he's right about to die. <laughs> Baron's <laughs> kind of grown up at that point, and he's kind of you know he's a little stockier than than you'd think he would have turned out. Yeah, yeah. And Donald's like, <laughs> "Will you please put your hands over my hands for just a moment, so it looks as though they're big." <laughs> it's that's possible. By Wait. that time, Baron will be in the time machine. Yeah, Baron anyway. is not going to give a shit about him. He, Baron hates Donald. There's no way. Baron hates Baron, yeah. and uh, I think that's the first problem that he's going to have to overcome. He's poor. That poor kid. Yeah, yeah. He's going to do yeah. like weird needle drugs before he gets found. You know? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> not like found. <laughs> like I mean, it's it's a possibility that he gets actually yeah, we're, found. Yeah, I wasn't like, you sure know, what like you meant. in the garage, but. More likely, he'll just, you know, have a come-to-Jesus moment in his late 20s. <laughs> a Stephen Baldwin? Hey, a little less like, <laughs> I'm going to kill my kids for God, you know, and, and mm. more of like a just a, I don't have to do this to myself anymore, do I? You know, and then yeah, he'll like start a center. It's hopeful, at least. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, you know, it'll probably be like that he gets found in the, in the, in the, the latter sense, you know. In the garage. Yeah. Or, well, what what's the Trump version of a garage? Autoerotic asphyxiation. An elevator? Uh, Ooh, yeah, it's going to be that. Yeah. Yeah, good. The golden elevator. He's a little too secluded and lonely. He's definitely- Poor the, Baron. You know, belt in the closet, you know? Do you see that picture of Poor him in the, uh, in the limousine? No, huh? Oh, he's just looking out the window all sullen and <laughs> just sad. Baneful. It's yeah. so sad. He's that, just per- honest to goodness, all kidding aside, like what a hell for that kid to live through. You know, what a hell for all of those and well, kids forever, to live through. Forever, the rest through. of his life. And well, the but thing, the unfortunate the rest thing, of those kids though. <laughs> well, everybody's old enough now that the that the damage has set into the cement of their minds. So like oh, they're okay, they're gonna, you know, the the hate that they that had be, you know. Shit begets shit, basically, is what yeah, I'm trying yeah. to say, you know. And and so Baron will unfortunately probably grow up to have similar holes in himself that he's trying to fill in similarly dangerous and 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 uh, vindictive ways. Ooh, what's Baron's rosebud? Uh, it is two hookers going pee pee on themselves on a bed in Russia. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> what, what is I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just trying to say the worst things that are that I can possibly I know. say. What am I doing? What did you say, Obi? This is why I shouldn't drive. This is, I, I let I let the kids take over. They no, run. it's fine. <laughs> you know, well, like at, at this point in the show, Obi, uh, Ms. De Havilland's left. We we don't have to. We, we oh, don't. She have fell to, asleep. She she doesn't hang oh. out this long in the pods. So no more we don't putting on to, airs. Nobody ODH. worries about anything. You know, like that's ODH. ODH. Yeah. ODH. 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 Our girl. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some people like ODB. <laughs> ODH. <laughs> nah, dude. ODH. ODH, baby. <laughs> ODH, come on the podcast. Uh, I swear. If you have, if there's anyone who's at any point knows I anyone, can, I, I think I think Ms. De Havilland is gettable. She just, you there could, was literally an article. We could easily get. Well, what? I don't know, easily. She's 104. We could easily get it. No, we she's get gettable, for sure. Because, like, honestly, she's probably emaciated enough to where she wouldn't be hard to pick up. The question and, is, would, um, how, yeah, no, no, okay. Yeah, we need her on here. Mm-hmm. I have to, I'll have to contact. Yeah, oh, uh, Obi, you have an IMDb Pro account, right? <laughs> okay, we're going to contact her manager yeah, tonight. No, that's very, I will happily send an email. Okay, we're going to see what happens. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, let's get to the miscellaneous errata. Are there any other things you guys kind of want to mention? I have some miscellaneous errata about sending an email. Once I, uh, uh, I was in a uh, conversation with some people somewhere and we were talking about uh, uh, Too Fast, Too Furious. And we were talking about how like some of the lines in that movie are just amazing. You know, like where Tyrese is like, you know, we hungry. It's just, it's amazing. Sure. And so I was talking with some folks at one point and I was like, man, I'd love to get my hands on that script. I'd love to, I'd love to just read that script. And we couldn't find it anywhere. And so I looked up uh, who wrote it. And as, and, you know, it's like Derek Haas. And it's like, well, I bet you dollars to donuts. Derek Haas has an email. So I look it up and I find it on his website, mm-hmm. send him an email. And it's like, Mr. Haas, I'm in, you know, as, a, as an aspiring action screenwriter, <laughs> I find uh, great influence in your work, especially the work that you did on uh, a motion picture, Too Fast, Too Furious. And, and so basically just send him an email saying yeah. like, I want to look over this as a document to hone my craft as a screenwriter, mm-hmm. just so I can see if he can, and he fucking emailed me back like an hour later. Later saying like, dude, that nobody's ever asked me this shit. Sure, and he gave me the locked <laughs> shooting script. It was, <laughs> and I can tell you, Tyrese ad libbed that shit. <laughs> That's amazing. The, on, on page two, they've got Ludacris announcing that opening race. I don't know if you guys have seen this shit box movie. Not it's clue. not very good, but uh, in the script, they have eight separate options for his opening line. And each one is worse than the other. Each one is more (laughs) racist and ham-fisted than the other. (laughs) It's just like the script is amazing. That is awesome. Really good. But either way, you know, send out that email, kids. You never know what you're going to get with a smile and a handshake. (laughs) It's true, especially if the guy's not used to getting any praise or like, or emails or autographs or anything All the coolest shit I've ever gotten, I got for free. Because I knew how to ask and when. It's true. I've given you a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, in college, I was able to shoot in like this awesome, beautiful, huge church right in the middle of downtown Chicago. And mm-hmm. it's just because I walked up to the front door and knocked and said like, hey, I'm nobody. I have nothing. Can I shoot here? Yeah. They just said, yeah. Well, Chicago is also a lot different than shooting in L.A. Well, yeah. Don't shoot in L.A. <laughs> yeah. Stop it. You know, all movies made in L.A. look like shit because L.A. is ugly. <laughs> All right, you're welcome for the bass guitar. You, know, yeah. you could have mentioned that. I gave you the bass guitar for free. Oh, nice I forgot stuff. about the fucking... You give me free shit all the time. You're awesome <laughs> like that. Thank you. You just gave me like two USB controllers yesterday. Yeah, that's right. I'm a damn generous person and I want some credit. Because yeah. <laughs> that's why you do it. Exactly. <laughs> to show it off on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Recognize me. I'm an altruist. Look at yeah. me. I don't do things for my own benefit. Yeah. Come on. That wouldn't be me. Uh, oh, Sean Faw, what do you got? I know you got stuff. Let's all go to the window. That's, yeah. That was I just good. thought that was really weird. Not a place. And yeah. Speaking of not a place, they started to mention other versions of Xanadu, mm-hmm. Shangri La, Sloppy uh, Joe, and Sloppy <laughs> Joe's. <laughs> Sloppy Joe's. Yeah. How is that a Shangri La? It's just old man trying to make rambly jokes. It's just like, so weird. Yeah. What do you call that? That uh, backflap, that stupid, that Zandu. Yeah, that guy. You know, it's just, yeah, it's a throwaway thing. Also, uh, trying to be old Southern charming. I I, I, did, I wanted to commend uh, Mr. Jedediah Leland for his um, his boldness in insulting the nurses when they're two <laughs> feet away from him, <laughs> saying that all nurses used to be good looking and now they're ugly. When he's that's like be- an old man thing to say anyway. 
These were nurses. Te- technically, he said that nurses were supposed to be good looking, but they never were and they still aren't. Oh. Oh. <laughs> what an asshole. Sean, Sean has a photographic memory when it comes to misogynistic statements. It's so true. When it comes to the most offensive stuff, he knows every word. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Also, okay, let's just cigars. He's obsessed with cigars. Mm-hmm. Can I just say, fuck cigars. Cigars suck. I like cigars. <laughs> they're overrated. You I don't. S- I smoke cigars. You don't inhale. Who cares? It's I, I. Well, I used to smoke cigarettes, and then I gave them gave them up, and I smoke cigars from time to time. They're better than cigarettes, but they're just stupid. What no, you, there's something to enjoyable. enjoy. It's for it's for the taste, and yeah. also it's best with like a a nice uh, a nice earthy red. It's also a different time, so it's a little bit... Maybe a little piece of chocolate. A little past where he is, but um, mostly people used to smoke a lot because the streets were filled with horse shit. So it was better to have a cigar or a cigarette in your mouth or a pipe than it was to walk around smelling everyone else and smelling the shit that was everywhere. So interesting. I don't know if that's really scientific there, that he just said that. Well, I mean, but like the thing is, is like before, I don't know before running water was a, a main thing. People man, used to literally beer. just like drop their pants and shit in the street. You know, they shit in the gutter. That's not really scientific or historically accurate either. Uh, Can you refute me with examples, please? Yeah, people used to think that in the Middle Ages that that was the reason for um, the bubonic plague. But the truth was, they didn't shit in the street. They they wouldn't do that. Mm. They had outhouses and such like that. No, the well, problem so with the bubonic so plague even, was they thought it was. Cat, they thought it was cats. There's a lot of they thought. They thought it was the chicken. Yeah. Yeah, like, rats the, or something. It ended up being rats, but they thought it was cats, so they got rid of all the cats, and then all the rats took over because there were no cats to control oh, the bummer, rats. and it made it worse. <laughs> it's the story like, of his it's like having a rally in a lockdown or something. Like, fuck, who's that fucking stupid? <laughs> the, um, the shit in the street isn't totally because people shit in the street. It's from chamber pots. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, but also it, it, it's when in vaudeville when people would slip on quote banana it was actually making fun of people slipping on shit. Mm. Oh, uh, I never knew that. So banana peel yeah. is shit. That mm-hmm. makes sense. A, bana- a banana peel is shit. That's why. Yeah. So it, it's not funny because they slip on a banana peel. It's funny because they, they slip, slip on a turd. That's yeah, it's amazing. That's that is really cool. I didn't know that. The things you learn on this podcast, yeah, guys. The more you know. No other podcast. <laughs> You're not going to learn that shit anywhere and it's else. Only on episodes when we have guests. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> don't tell them that. <laughs> nah, the other ones are just all personality. That's what the people really love. Derek's there. He does stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Derek's a government plant. <laughs> awesome. I can't refute that. I, I really have no evidence. Like if anybody to... secretly works for the NSA. It's Derek. It's not Mais, really a secret. Monsieur Laporte. Monsieur Laporte. Monsieur Laporte. Monsieur Laporte. Tell us your secrets, Mr. Laporte. Uh, uh, Obi, do you have any extras, miscellaneous things we kind of forgot? Errata? I mean, I have a lot, but um, the, the, you have there's, a lot of there's two. Um, I have a lot of errata. Um, the, well, the two, a couple things I wanted to mention that I actually forgot. The, it was um, George Schaefer was the, or George Schaefer, I guess was the head of RKO, the name I was trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was Nelson Rockefeller. It was um, Hetty Harper, who was the, the gossip columnist who first saw Citizen Kane and told Hearst about it. Um, and then it was Luella Parsons, who was the, the actual publicist under, you know, the Hearst. 
um, who was like the big gossip columnist, um, just to correct all the fucking fuck-ups I did before earlier. Um, but the two errata that I would mention for the movie, um, the one thing we didn't mention was that it's edited by Robert Wise, right. um, who, who went out found, uh, Sound of Music. Um, and uh, one of the innovators, he was the head of RKO um, editing, also around Wells' age at the time. Um, and he would, one of the innovative things that he ran the film, like the negative of the film, along the studio floor to make it look rough when they needed the rough footage. Mm. Um, so like those handheld shots that they did, which by the way, again, was not something they did in studio films at all. Um, it kind of looked documentary style. Um, so Robert Wise was the editor. Um, the other errata, it's only made me think of it because you mentioned it, but um, Kubla Khan. Um, mm. So the, the poem at the beginning of that, back to literally literary, um, the Boom. poem that he mentions in, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. Um, anybody know about that poem? No, no, no one knows except for you. Yeah, Just tell dude. us. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Nerd. I, it's actually, it's a really cool story around the writing of that poem. So um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who's famous for Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, the water, water everywhere. Um, he was on an opium trip. He was sitting in his chamber um, and while he was high, had this vision of this unbelievable poem, and it came to him just perfect, just line by line. And he he was just kind of milling it over, and it was fully formed as this grand sweeping epic. And he sat down to write it, and there was a knock at his door. <laughs> so he's like, "Fuck!" So he goes and he answers it, and he had this expected uh, visitor. Um, for an hour or so. And when he left, he sat down to write and the whole poem was gone. Oh. And all that's left is this kind of bad poem. It's, it's really um, in its own right, but, but that's what that's from. And Xanadu did Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree in fields of ice and shit. So it goes on. It's not a very long poem, um, but it's an unfinished work. And there's a sort of Coleridge gave an explanation for it. So he's like, okay, I'm sorry, this sucks. It was going to be really fucking good. But, you know, it's, it's all about the loss of a dream anyway. That's what <laughs> Kublai Khan, the poem, that's what the writer, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, dealt with as he was writing it, was the loss of a dream, which of course is exactly what Citizen Kane is about. It's about the loss of a dream. How meta. So for you. I could find more, but that's all I got. <laughs> um, Timmer, you got anything else? Errata? Um, in relation to the film? No. Not a, you know, nothing off the top of my head, and I'm not going to give you a bunch of dead air while I try to think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, last thing I want to say is that I really loved the dialogue, too. I mean, I mentioned a lot of the sound stuff, but there was a lot of overlapping dialogue, and I thought that was really sweet, oh, yeah. how they kind of used um, a lot of the background sound, a lot of, like, the, the newspaper men were talking over each other. But it was actually never too crazy. You could pick out specific lines, I thought. I thought it got muddled. It did get a little muddled, for sure. I just think that was more technological issue. So I, I, I recently watched Jaws for the first time, 
And wow. I noticed that in Jaws, they do that a lot, yeah. but they do it very well and very specifically. And you can still crisply understand the people that you need to understand at the right time, even though there's a ton of other stuff going on. I didn't get that sort of precision with the the sound in this movie as much. Um, so yeah, to me, a lot of the sound started to get muddled. That might just be, you know, my hearing loss issues at this point. Um, but yeah, I think that too many things, you know, it's almost starts to sound like Fox news or CNN or something. Oh yeah. These, the two sound guys were from radio, James G Mm. Stewart, I believe. Um, very famous, but he worked in radio. So it was very radio techniques, almost like Orson Welles did with um, War of the Worlds, War of the Worlds yeah. right? Where you just kind of have all these overlapping things because you're not focused necessarily on so many other visuals. You can yeah. kind of do that. I do agree it did get muddled at certain sometimes, but I appreciate they were trying to yeah. do that kind of thing. You know, and it's a difficult thing to pull off background foreground stuff with multiple voices. And and we, there's a reason why when we do Walla today, it's just bullshit words, right? Mm. When we just do Walla, it's just peas and carrots and watermelon because we don't want to be distracted by the background act. So I, I think they were trying to do a lot here. I think some of it worked, some of it didn't. I think some of it worked a lot when there was like two characters, like one in the background, one in the foreground, like, yeah, yeah. like in like the Hearst Castle stuff. But I guess that was all I want to say about that specific one. So we're going to move on to our final segment here, and that's going to be our ratings. Mm-hmm. So OB, you get to really do your own scale. I'm going to do 10. I think, I think Sean does a five-star scale, mm-hmm. and then Tim makes up his own. But um, if you want, you can kind of make up your own scale. I'm, I can, whatever. So let's start with you, if that's okay. Uh, give us your final rating of Citizen Kane. My rating on a scale of whatever the scale I wanted. <laughs> yeah, let's say that. How about one to ten? You can use okay. my scale. Oh no, I'll use classic, my scale. Uh, it's a classic. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a chapter. I'm gonna give it's the it's chapter eleven in Ulysses. The out of it, which makes it like the third or fourth best, maybe second oh my of my favorite personal. That's most O'Brien thing. <laughs> Could you be more on uh, brand? It's a ten. It's a ten. I, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't really know how to rank it. If it's, if it, it's, is on my top like five favorite movies of all time. I was I, taking as a far as greatest said? films of all time. I think that that's fair. Is this a perfect um, movie? It, Rating. There's no such thing as a perfect movie. Yeah. No such thing. <laughs> Back to the Future. I don't think so. <laughs> Fuck, no, that's not a fucking perfect movie. <laughs> Fuck that shit. That's fucking Damn. perfect movie bullshit. No, it's not. It's, yeah. Every every movie in and, of, in and of itself is an expression of whatever is happening right then and there by the either the people. It's always the people, by the way. But like this, among most other films, is a singular vision. Um, so it's it's hard to you know. Of course, it's a collaborative effort. Every film's a collaborative. Effort. I mean, he shared the fucking final credit, but you know, this is. Wells' direction. Um, And yeah, I mean, as far as innovation, if you take in the historical context of all of it, I I mean, it's, it is, it is in kind of its own little scale. You know what I mean? It is on par with kind of 2001 A Space Odyssey, whether you like what it did, you know, it is very rarely met in innovation and magic, in the magic that is cinema. Um, I mean, this film ruined Wells' life in so many ways chief among them is that he realized what cinema could do he didn't want to make movies mm-hmm. he had no interest in making movies it took it took rko a ton of different tries to finally get him the contract and he only contract because he's like 
whatever the fuck I want. And that was unheard of in Hollywood. So they gave it to him. They let him make one movie. And then like all of us fucking crazy ass filmmakers, he was addicted and he spent the rest of his life just chasing that. Just, he's like, I just want to make one fucking film or film from beginning to end. That's all I want to do for the rest of my life. And he never fucking did. He never, ever made another film. He, he, his favorite was Chimes at Midnight, but he still had to jump through so many hoops in order to make it. So yeah. They even put it on the scale. So his life was the unfinished work as much as Kane's. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe this was his rosebud. Self-fulfilling prophecy, sort of. Mm. Yeah. Easy way. All right. Mm. Uh, Sean Faw, what do you think? What do you review this? What do you rate it? Um, I'm going to go with uh, four stars out of five. Yeah, Four and a half, four, four, four. Yeah, we'll sit on four. Um, Sean, what's a five star film? Doesn't exist. Sorry to interrupt. Um, okay, so, so this is a five star then. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's the thing. Like my yes, I um, I I think zero stars and five stars are both almost unattainable. Um, okay. If yeah, so this is like four stars. Um, Can not, you give me a point? Like how many points? What's that? Something. Oh. And is, is it over a four? No, I'm going to go right at four. Um, okay. Because it is it is a good movie, and it's better, like I said at the beginning, it's way better than I anticipated going in the first time. Um, I always anticipated it being, you know, super stuffy and just kind of like pompous and, you know, old people shit. Um, but it's certainly got its moments of cheese and fluff and, you know, weirdness and things that just don't quite seem to, um, you know, keep it at the same level as, uh, I guess, a, a, what I would consider a lot of history's viewing of this movie. So, yes, it is gr a great movie, like consistently one of the greatest movies of all time. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that assessment. It is an enjoyable movie and I like it, but I, I yeah, I don't know that it necessarily is as awesome as, you know, its reputation. Okay. Um, I'm going to give this, I was thinking about it, going back and forth between eight and nine. I guess I'm going to settle on an eight. Um, it's really, really enjoyable. It's very fun. It still holds up, which is crazy for a movie from 1941. Um, obviously all the influential stuff from the visuals to the sound is really impressive and you need to watch it for that. But I think overall, it's just kind of a story that is timeless. We've kind of come yeah. back to this. It's just because it's simply a character study of a guy who's, uh, had a screwed up childhood and was given lots of wealth and riches and, you know, squandered it and ruined his own life. But I think that it's, again, very, very common for a protagonist to go through those things as kind of Tim said, he's like the protagonist. So I think that works so well throughout the ages. So I can't, I mean, I think I would, and I, every time I see it, like I said, it's only second time seeing it, but I'm getting new things out of it. You, you know, OB's telling me cool stories about it. So I think it's also an, a really interesting flashpoint for any sort of film history. So if you are interested in history or film at all, it's something you do have to watch. I know everyone hates that because it's like, you know, everyone watches it in film Home school. Work. It's yeah. a good, it's a good descriptor though, calling it a flashpoint. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well then let's, uh, let's go to you then because I'm, I'm done. I eight out of 10. Well, <laughs> so with, I, I actually had a, I had a, uh, a pretty good review put together and I got fucking careless with it earlier in the pod. 
and I just, you know, gave it away. You mm. might say I left the fucking window open on it and it died young. Um, but uh, uh, that was, but uh, yeah, it was reaching. Okay. Very much so. They're not meant to be good. <laughs> Uh, but no, so, you know, most films are entertainment. And so I'd like to rate this film on a, on a, on a scale of entertainment. And I think that this film isn't really entertainment so much as it's art. And namely, I would say that this film is Dadaist in the way that it, that it approaches cinema. You know, this is classical cinema's Dadaist work, you know, uh, I would say, because it's such a, this film contemporarily, because, I mean, you know, it came out around the time, like, Casablanca was was coming out around this time, you know, this these classical films. And and this film is such a, such a violent upset of that status quo, you know, and it's such a harbinger of things to come. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Dada movement uh, of art, which was, like, I think it was popular in the, uh, after World War I um, as a societal thing, but like, as you know, just very violent and loud and, and disruptive, you know, and this film is very disruptive and violent and loud at times, you know, <laughs> fucking God damn it, Sean. But you know, it drives my point home. They had to wake you up. Yeah. And it, this film woke us up, you know? And so I rate this film as Dadaist art on a scale of entertainment. All right. Sean O'Brien. Pauline Kale called it the well to hey the Pauline Kale the who wrote the the essay Raising Cain on it called it a shallow masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> to to kind of add to that, it's exactly Dada. Uh, comedy. Um, yeah. I think I already went though. The, oh wait, there was one other thing of uh, Arada I wanted to add to it. Um, the two things I mentioned or I forgot to mention. Um, that shot that we talked about earlier about the boom up to the stage hands, mm-hmm. um, remember in the during the opera scene, mm-hmm. that was a suggestion from uh, one of the grips. They were just talking. They were like on set, uh, and and he, they mentioned they're like, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we went up? And whereas Moses was like, yes, actually, it would. <laughs> um, so that they cool. just added that that sequence to it. I know. Um, and I can't do you know if those actors whatever, were the actual talking. grips? Yeah, that would be funny. It's also it's it that speaks to the power of suggestibility I don't know. to make I something amazing. You know, if you leave yourself open a suggestion yeah. that yeah. can really bounce you up to the next plateau with your art, because you're not always going to have the best fucking idea in the room. Yeah, that's from theater. theater. I you're, think yeah. you're most the best idea. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, and I think that's why Orson Welles was so successful here because he's 24 and he didn't know and he was just gung-ho. Oh, let's try everything. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, OB already said yeah. this, but that's why I told him. Can you imagine how fun of a set that would have been like to be on? Yeah. What I, a f- such a free environment. I have been on one or two of those kind of things where they really, again, I'm a sound mixer. I'm not really king. Are you comparing some of your work to Citizen Kane? No, I'm saying that I've been on sets where they allow you to be free and they uh, <laughs> maybe be a little more creative than than normal. That's all. You that got to do some fun. creative booming. Well, exactly. I'm like, yeah. what can I do that's that creative? No, but are, it was are like, are you an artist with your booming? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the way I swing it is absolutely an art. No, I mean, like for for instance, like maybe I will notice a certain sound that all oh, that that was record that wasn't normally going to be there that was taking place on set. Oh, maybe it's like the creaking of a chair, or you know, the, oh, that really cool old door makes a really cool sound. Let's record that, and maybe we'll use that in post. And again, not super creative, but if just saying, at least it, it's nice to be on a set where people are free to experiment. That's yeah. all. Well, it's your art. 
Son of a bitch. <laughs> All right. I can't win. So uh, I think we're going to finally wrap this baby up. So Sean, Fa, are there any other... We already plugged this thing so much. We don't need to plug and promote our podcast anymore, do we? No. Well, I mean, we do have the Patreon that people can donate to. Be like. sure to check out all the shows on the podcast network. We've got literally literary going down in some Again. parts. <laughs> <laughs> may, I plug a few, may I plug some stuff? <laughs> this is funny. Yeah. Before we do that, one thing we should definitely do is plug our guest. Oh, that's true. Our guest does have a new, what do you call that? A, 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 a novel? Novel. Novel. Oh, novel. <laughs> <laughs> or is it a novel? Oh, thanks, man. It's novelly a novel? Um, it is a novel. A novel. Dope. Yeah. Where can one this. find such shenaniganery? Uh, it's only available through ebook right now, but it's on, on uh, so you can either download a Kindle app on your phone or tablet, or if you have a Kindle, uh, it's on Amazon. It's a three ninety nine. It's, it's called, called Discarded. Wow. Uh, at Discarded uh, it's by Sean O'Brien. Is this and, your first uh, book? Yeah. It's my second novel that I've written. It's the first one that like I've put out. That's amazing. Um, but I'm sure. Tr- Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I wrote it in quarantine. <laughs> yeah. First, after like the first week of being here, I was like, huh, might be, because I didn't know what unemployment was going to look at, look like. <laughs> so um, I I was like, well, let me just draft this out real quick. So I sat down, scribed it out, and then I, it, chapters long, because it's, the whole idea is it's a, it's about a pandemic, actually. It was kind of fitting. It's all set literally on my block. Um, it's sort of a, like a, a near future dystopian thing, as if we didn't get this under control. So, so basically. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like literally, is like, like in it kind of traces it all. Um, but it's set two years in the future, so it's set like 2022. Wow. Um, and it follows this girl named Cassandra, um, who finds little discarded on the streets and uh vows to find out who the artist is. Um, so it's some mixes of um, sort of Greek mythology, uh, Arthurian legend, and um, and a little bit of Dante in there to. to of, um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know exactly how you classify it. Neo-modernist, I guess, but it's fun. <laughs> it's yeah, good. Discarded. Right. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. Obi, are, is it based off your discarded poet posted poetry? Hmm? Yeah. Oh, it yeah. Is. Okay. I mean, I figured I have like a, I have a built-in audience of people who will buy the book. So I'm like, all right, I'll just like do exactly what they would want to do. Because I'm technically anonymous on that site. So like whoever would want to so the whole idea is like, oh, who writes these things? I know. Um, I can yeah. tell them. <laughs> yeah, you can. can I tell? Can I spill the beans, <laughs> guys? It's Sean O'Brien. I know the, the secrets. Up. <laughs> he lives in West Hollywood too. I, I've I, seen I, the post it. Tell you where he is. <laughs> yeah. The real question is though, who is who is the poet in the book? That's the that's the mystery. Uh-huh. Um, the, yeah. Is this a new story that you uh, came up with, or is this an old story that you decided that you were finally going to follow through on? Or no, it's a new story. I I drafted the whole thing out in about a day, and I wrote chapter by chapter in thirteen days. Um, so by then it was around three hundred fifty pages, and then I took another month or so, um, ended up being a, just around four hundred. Um, wow. And yeah. So how many pages a day were you <laughs> writing? A month. Um, it's hard to cl- classify. I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really don't know. Cause it was on like, it was, it was more of a word count. Uh-huh. Uh, word. and it was probably close to like six, I think like six to 10,000 words. 
a day, somewhere wow. in there. And you were yeah, able. Yeah, that was the average. Did you keep yourself to a to a daily uh, uh, a daily stretcher with that? Like, were you were you writing like every single yeah. day? I write from this to this. Yeah. So the first the 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 I I followed a pretty similar pattern to what I did the first. Uh, uh-huh. Um and yeah, I'd wake up early. Uh, my girlfriend, it's just a one bedroom apartment. So she, she wakes up like at a regular time, but mm-hmm. I, I write better in the morning. So I would, I would wake up around four. Um, and then she, like, nine thirty ten. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, ideally if I could get a 12 hour day in, then I'll be okay. Um, some days were longer than others because some chapters are way more complex than others. And you were but able I, to keep I, the grind up for 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, so because it was 13 chapters, um, I had hoped to do like, you know, five days a week and then the last day, or I guess four days of the week. And then the, I was going to, I'm sorry, I was going to do five days a week the first three weeks, but it became kind of too complicated and I wanted to edit. So I did four days of writing, one day of editing. Um, and then the second week was really fucking hard. So I did four days of writing and I think I just took the next two days off. Hmm. And then I did the last, then I did, the, I took a weekend, the, that weekend off and I wrote throughout the rest of the book. So I did the last four or five chapters, um, in a row. So yeah, 13, 13 actual writing days, three. As, as a young writer myself, dude, that's, that's amazing discipline. I really commend that. That's, oh, that's dope. I mean, that's awesome. That's, thanks, that's the yeah, trick is really, I mean, that, cause that's what it takes is just fucking doing it every damn day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah. you're also not as familiar with the, yeah. the grind of the ob as yeah. we are oh is he like is he is he like weird and pathological with it he can't he's stop just prolific that's, that's and, what he does. yeah it's it's it is oh, okay a, well then then i like i respect it less if it's kind of just like a symptom of your neuropathy yeah, no yeah. you you for sure that's what it takes it just takes doing it like yeah. that and that's a you know yeah. you, you've got a published novel to show for that and that's amazing i gotta check it out thanks man yeah, yeah. please yeah check out discarded on the kindle store under sean o'brien yeah all right. Well, thank you guys for listening. I know this was yeah. a long one, but we appreciate it. Check um, out my art on Instagram at timothy.jeff.snow. I was going to say, yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that should do it, Sean. So end this, baby. Yeah, shut it off. Fuck you.